What's up, podcast listeners? It's your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and this is the first episode of 2020. Holy fuck, this year went by really quickly, and I wanted to do something really special and put together my top five podcast episodes where I've interviewed someone in 2019. So this is the most popular, the most listened to, and the one that had the most engagement and interaction with everyone online. So I'm really excited to share all of these and just keep in mind in between each episode, there's going to be some kind of weird dead space to kind of blend them together. So just a heads up, but this first one is with Dr. Stuart McGill, which was a huge, huge interview for me. And no wonder it's the number one out of my top five. So again, all these are in order from number one to number five, most listened to. So without further ado, here is episode 257 with Dr. Stuart McGill. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me for the first time, a living legend, Dr. Stuart Miguel. Say hello. Oh, good afternoon, Rafael. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, yeah, like uh, before we hit the record button. I, I, know, I do know where Langley is, not only Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, like before we started recording, we were just chatting about where I'm from, and I always tell all my guests, I'm, I always say Vancouver because they never know where Langley is. And if they're from America, they automatically think of Vancouver, Washington. And I'm like, nope, not even close. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like. Because I've had you, this is the first time I've had you on my show, I always kind of like to do like a little rough summary of an intro of who you are, what you do, and how did you get into what you do today? All right. Well, uh, I'm a retired professor. I was a professor at University of Waterloo for 32 years. Uh, I started the lab at that time with one simple question, how does the spine work? And from that, as we began to understand the answer to that question, we then branched out into questions like, what are the mechanisms leading to back pain? Uh, How's the uh, best way to assess the mechanism of that pain and then come up with an appropriate rehab strategy? And then we got into um, high performance optimization, which was really athletics. How do you get the best performance out of a person's back? About 20 years ago, I was getting more and more requests to see patients. I never asked to see a patient. They just kept asking, and and various clinicians and, and coaches would say, well, would you see our stubborn patient? What you just wrote about or published um, was it seems to be very relevant to a difficult case that we have right now. Would you see the patient? And slowly I became a uh, clinician. I would get invited to different medical schools and different uh, high-level sports programs and whatnot and became much more comfortable in uh, seeing patients. Uh, then we opened up the clinic at the university we started with a two-hour appointment time, and, and other people said, well, you're crazy, a two-hour appointment for a back pain patient? Because with what we had learned about probing a patient to really get at a detailed and precise understanding of their pain mechanism, it took us two hours. 
Well, we did that for a couple of years and I changed it to three hours. So we then learned to really get a good understanding, to be able to show a person what their precise pain triggers are and create a strategy to avoid them, to allow pain desensitization, and then rebuild their foundation once again to be pain-free in whatever activity it was uh, in their goal. So that was the story of my uh, uh, career at the university. As I said, I retired a couple of years ago, and now I have a clinic uh, at my home where I just see uh, one or two patients one or two days a week, but they're all uh, special patients, uh, people who are really struggling. They've been to a dozen, a dozen or so different clinicians, and they either have got worse or they certainly haven't got better. So that's uh, the summary of it. <laughs> nice. But I'm like really curious about is like what got you into the spine in the first place? Like what made you so passionate about learning about what the spine does? Well, it was all uh, just dumb luck and random events in a way. Uh, I, I was never really meant to go to university, but it was my interest in uh, athletics and playing sport that I even went to university in the first place. But uh, then I uh, got interested in, in biomechanics and I did a master's degree in uh, well, it was in, in French at University of Ottawa. The program was Kinanthropologie, which translates to, kinanthro to, to uh, kinesiology and anthropology. However, my uh, degree was in biomechanics. And then I was playing hockey with the professor's team at University of Ottawa. And we, this was as a master's student, and we played the University of Waterloo. And I, I met a professor uh, after the game because the two teams would come together and have beers in the dressing room. You see how random life can be. And he invited me to Waterloo to, to come and use some of his instrumentation that I needed for my thesis at the time. And then, long story short, I ended up doing my uh, PhD with him in spine biomechanics. So it just uh, went on from there. And uh, it, really, life for me was just random events. If you asked me 20 or 30 years ago what my career path was going to be, I couldn't have answered that. I had no idea. I'm still absolutely amazed at uh, where, where I am right now. I never would have predicted it. Wow, okay. And now the other thing I'm kind of curious about is like your three-hour initial appointment. Like, What are some things that take a lot of time to kind of really dissect because like I work in a clinic with a chiropractor and usually a full initial is an hour so I can only imagine what you're asking to really figure out the root cause of pain. Well, it begins with an interview, and that interview is set up very strategically. We, we go into a room where I sit at 45 degrees to the person, uh, for, so I'm at one side of them, and the, the other side is a picture window with a forest. Uh, in front of them is a fireplace. This is all designed to get them to relax, and I, I don't say much. I welcome them, and I say, well, tell me why you're here. Now, with that open-ended approach, I learn a lot of things. Um, I learn about their passions, I learn about their habits, and some of the things that are contributing to their inability to become pain-free. 
Uh, I might perform clandestine tests where I'll say, would you mind handing me that backpack? It was just simply to watch them move and watch the stress accumulate in different parts of their body and whether that is part of the reason why they have pain. Um, And then I asked them to tell me if they haven't in their narrative told me what makes it better, what makes it worse about the character of the pain. Is it worse in the morning? Is it neurally pins and needle type and thing? Is it a very boring central pain, Um, radiating, etc.? And then I want to know about their current training program. Uh, some of the therapies that they've tried in the past that have failed or made them worse. So I, I sometimes by that point I'm I've got a pretty good understanding of, of their, their pain just by listening to that story. Uh, some people tell me about uh, abusive situations uh, that uh, is conspiring with all the mechanical things to uh, cause pain. Uh, some people might tell me about their job, etc., etc., etc. Then I take them downstairs to the clinic side of things, and I do provocative testing. I provoke the things that I suspect are pain generators, and I see if, in fact, they are causing pain. And then I explore alternatives. Or is there any other alternative explanations? For example, the patient I saw this morning had extensor-driven pain, and uh, they were telling me, oh, how their facets are sore, and some clinicians have told them that the pain is from their facet joints and whatnot. Well, I tested and loaded their facets, and they didn't cause uh, any pain whatsoever. Um, They had a disc bulge, and from their history, they told me they'd gone to a clinic that told them to do floppy push-ups, which are laying on your tummy and extending the spine over and over. And then when I looked at the MRI images, the neural arch, the lamina in the back of their spines were lit up with edema. They had heavy bone bruising. So the, the sloppy push-ups had actually bruised their bones. So it was a bone bruise that was causing central pain when they went into that position. Um, So there's an example where they were going for the wrong thing because someone thought extensor-driven pain was most likely facets, but they didn't have the skill set to test to see if in fact they were or what is the alternate. Then I summarize for the patient If I can, with precision, exactly what the pain generators are. So this person this morning had a open fissured disc bulge, which meant it applied pressure to the sciatic root when they sat, but the pressure went away when they stood and walked. Um, There was also underhooking the nerve root, which meant if they looked up and extended their neck, the spinal cord drifted caudally down into the underhook, and that replicated what they thought were SI joint pain. It wasn't SI joint pain at all. It was referred from the sciatic root based on neural tension and an underhook, underhooking bulge. So that's how precise we can get uh, in uh, most of the time, but not every time. Uh, then I showed them movement strategies to move in a way that didn't cause pain, now we're on the way to pain desensitization. But bone pain and edema in bone, that takes a long time to desensitize. Uh, It might take anywhere from several weeks 
to uh, three or four, maybe five months if the bone bruise is really uh, easily triggered. But that will wind down. I've never met a person yet who hasn't been able to wind down that kind of uh, pain sensitivity. Uh, then I gave them exercises to build the foundation within their current tolerance together with a program looking forward, how we can get the nerves to flow around the disc bulge and a strategy to slowly uh, reduce the size of the disc bulge as well. So that took three hours as an example. Wow, okay, yeah, that's very detailed. And now I'm kind of curious of like your opinion why a lot of clinicians kind of miss those things. Like, do you think it's because they're not spending enough time to really figure out what's going on? Or are they not you know, spending enough time on teaching the patient how to do pain-free movement and have that as part of their like routine on a daily basis to get better? First, I don't think clinicians know how to perform a thorough assessment. Okay. I, I don't think very many have those skills at all. We, we, we teach a, an entire course on master clinician assessment of back pain. Uh, that's the first reason, and uh, very few are able to then see what it is in the person's life that is causing the accumulated stress and the uh, pain sensitivity in specific tissues, and they may or may not know how to coach a strategy that avoids those pain triggers. So, see, most clinicians are paid to perform procedures, be it dry needling, be it a physical therapy approach, be it a manipulation, be it a surgery or whatever. They're paid for procedures. They're not paid to do a very, very thorough assessment to create efficacy. The only thing that matters to me is efficacy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm paid to cure back pain. And if I, I didn't know would ever come to see me, I don't advertise, uh, I don't hold out a shingle, or people come to get their back better. Yeah, yeah, because I think most chiros, at least like the older ones that I've seen in my area, they kind of just try to get through as many patients as possible within the hour and kind of just, you know, adjust this one, adjust that one, and it's kind of like almost like a machine where I think a lot of them are kind of leaving a lot of good stuff on the table where if they spent a little bit more time with them, the person can actually start feeling better. Are you saying they're not motivated to get them better? That would um, be in their financial interest? Maybe, because like, I find that a lot of chiros kind of have a lot of freedom of how they want to run their business. And the ones I've seen that, you know, have the seven to ten minute appointments kind of almost seem more money driven than actually spending enough time to really figure out what's going on. Whereas I'm kind of seeing a new shift of like newer chiros coming out of school where they want to spend longer with the patient because they almost just feel the need to help people, but I don't know maybe if that's gonna change you know, 10 or 20 years down the road, but it just seems that the chiros that spend less time, they're not really getting the person better, and they, that patient always kind of just comes back for the, you know, the neck adjustment, the low back adjustment to feel better temporarily. Well, I think your perceptions are right on. Uh, we have quite a few 
uh, chiropractors who are master clinicians in the McGill method, and we refer patients around the world to them. They're located around the world. As I said, uh, quite a number of them are uh, chiropractors, but they have many tools in their uh, toolbox. We've taught them how to do a very masterful clinician to reach a, a precise understanding of the pain mechanism, and uh, they have enough tools that they know which one to pull out of their toolbox. You know, if you have an unstable joint, say you've had a disc bulge, a bit of a flatter disc, it will experience micro-movements. It's like letting air out of your car tire. The tire bulges and it's a bit sloppy on the road. Well, this happens to people's uh, spinal joints. And uh, it, would, it makes zero sense at all to manipulate that and give it more mobility when, in fact, it needs stiffness for stability to engineer out the pain-triggering uh, micro-movements, which are easily, easy, quite easily to detect on a thorough assessment. No, definitely. Um, so I kind of want to get into the questions I sent you that we prepared because I feel like I don't think we're going to get through all of them because you just love to talk and you're like one of the best guests ever where, you know, you ask one question and you go off for like 10 minutes straight. But um, I kind of wanted to bring up the whole idea of surgery because I feel, especially in the general population, when they get to that point where nothing is getting better, they always kind of look down the surgery route and there's so many different procedures out there and I kind of just want to get your opinion on going down the surgery route and what you know, procedures are out there and, you know, what are the risks and things like that? Okay, well, sorry for my long answers, but <laughs> your questions deserve very thorough yeah. responses. And the whole uh, question of whether a person should have surgery, it requires a really systematic approach to reach a, a decision. This is a big life-altering uh, experience. And, and at the end of the day, the surgeon has to be able to cut the pain out with a knife. That's the bottom line. So I wrote uh, in my last book, which I wrote for the lay public called Back Mechanic, I have an entire chapter to guide this systematic uh, decision approach. Uh, so you've already pointed out people who consider surgery think they have explored all conservative approaches. They'll say to you, oh, well, I've tried chiropractic, I've tried physical therapy, I've tried this and that. Well, what was physical therapy? The chances are they never had a thorough assessment in physical therapy and the therapist gave them floppy push-ups and uh, wobbling on a gym ball or something like that. It had no chance to address very precisely their um, back pain, but the person didn't know that. The person thought they had matched uh, therapy. So um, as the assessment always shows what the mechanism of pain is, we can then guide the person to know whether they truly are a low-risk surgical case. No one wants to take high-risk surgery risks if, uh, if they don't need to. So, uh, interestingly, many surgeons fail to do a precise and thorough assessment as well. They simply look at the MR scan. In fact, there are websites where you can send in your scans and they will declare whether they can cut your pain out or not. I can't understand this because the MRI scan shows the full life history and anatomy changes due to their full life 
on that scan. How does the surgeon know if the feature they're looking at is a recent wound that's causing pain or an old scar that no longer causes pain anymore? You know, I can see scars on my face and in your hands and whatnot, and uh, they don't hurt one little bit, but they sure did at the time you, you did it. So I, I don't understand well i think people should run the other way if they go in and the first thing the surgeon does is not take a history but they put their scans up on the view box and declare whether they can cut their pain out they have to do a a thorough uh, assessment to determine uh, the surgical target and what t technique they're going to use um but the next thing is this Surgery works on a lot of people because it's forced rest. Can you consider a CrossFit athlete or a stay-at-home mom who goes to the gym every day, and she'll tell you in the interview, I have to go and ride the elliptical for 30 minutes every day. It's my stress reliever, and if I don't do it, I'm going to murder my husband. You, you may have heard a few patients like this. They are exercise addicts. They will not get rid of their back pain as long as they're addicted to exercise. What the surgery does is it forces them to break the addiction, and they must rest. So we perform what we call virtual surgery. We pretend they had surgery and they start a recovery as if they had, say, uh, a microdiscectomy or a laminectomy or some procedure like that. Do you know that 95% of them will recover and not need surgery? I've measured that and I can stand by that. So 95% of the people that we see who have been told they needed surgery and we followed up with every patient who ever came to the clinic, if they fit that category, 95% of them uh, avoided uh, surgery. However, at the end of the day, there are some people who will do well with surgery. We know the risk is low. Well, how do you know? If the surgery is targeted at a single level, so say they have a single level disc bulge trapping a nerve root, they've identified the nerve root, they know exactly that it's that nerve root and not any other. Um, and uh, well, that that's generally a, a less risk kind of surgery. But when a surgeon comes in and says, oh, you need a three-level fusion, we're going to put in an artificial disc. In other words, the more the hardware that's put in, the less chance of a successful outcome. But the surgeons say to patients, oh, I have a 95% success rate. But the pay people don't say, well, could you qualify what a successful surgery is? For most surgeons, that means the patient is still living after a couple of weeks and the pain is somewhat less, but they're still on pain meds by that point. Do they do a six-month follow-up and a one-year follow-up to find out how successful they truly were? I don't know of very many. I could probably count on one hand who do long-term uh, follow-up. Then the uh, patient should ask the uh, surgeon, well, what is the rehab program? Are you going to show me what caused this thing you're going to operate on and make sure I don't get it back in the future? And if the surgeon can't do that, I would avoid the surgeon as well. Um, but, you know, there are some patients that, uh, what's the name of your show? Uh, cut the shit, get fit. <laughs> Okay, what I was going to say was shit happens, so I thought I'm going to let you say that word first so it's legal for me to say it. Yeah. Shit happens. So say a person has a Tarloff cyst on a femoral nerve root. 
there you go. We know what is dragging every time they sit down in the car or uh, perform a specific movement, that Tarloff cyst pulls on the nerve. Uh, shit happens. It's not a hell of a lot I can do to uh, remove that. Well, there are some surgical procedures to deflate the Tarloff cyst. Very rarely does it work. However, uh, there's a surgeon that we use in Texas who has a technique where they wrap the nerve and wrap the uh, Tarloff cyst. And I, I know because I follow up with his patients, he has a very high success rate. So when we have something very specific, uh, and there is one example, surgery makes a lot of sense, but go find the surgeon who has the most efficacious uh, approach. All right, fair enough. Um, the next thing I want to get into Sorry is a long way to no. answer, but could I give you a better answer in a shorter time? Probably not. No, like that. It's great. Like I love having guests like you where they really go in depth because, like, the worst guess is like they give you a two-word answer and you just have to keep going with the with the interview. But um, yeah, the next thing I kind of want to get into is kind of talking about the mental health when it comes to recovering from say low back pain or SI joint pain because I've seen in the clinic that I work at people with you know high anxiety levels or dealing with depression and things like that it almost seems like their pain kind of lingers on a little bit longer and I'm kind of curious on your take on the topic too. Well context is everything and, and that can be a huge issue or it can be an iatrogenic issue. Can you imagine a person who's been told by their doctor they have uh, degenerative disc disease? So they hear that they have a degenerative disc disease. All they have is a flattened disc, but someone told them that. So no wonder they have high anxiety thinking that they're 25 years old with a degenerative disease. Isn't that a horrible thing to, to yeah. say to someone? Yeah. So, you know, that is caused by the clinician. That's iatrogenic. Um, but let's get back to chronic low-grade pain that disrupts your sleep. I've just given you the uh, World Health Organization definition of torture. Deprive someone of sleep and uh, give them low-grade chronic pain, and you will break them down mentally. But the question is how best to treat it. There are some clinicians who believe, well, I'm going to use cognitive behavioral therapy to, to, to treat their depression and anxiety. Uh, and they'll say, well, it doesn't matter how you move. Your posture doesn't matter. I'm just going to treat you and tell you it's okay to keep moving. We find that many, at least the patients that we go, uh, that we see, have already been that route, and they're the failures, and they have even more anxiety. They cannot fathom that when they bend forward and flush the toilet, why there's a chance that someone will come out of the sky and shove a knife in their back. No one has shown them that they have a very active open fissure disc, and when they bend forward, even to flush the toilet like that, that's the mechanism that allows the fissure to open up and uh, some nuclear material to touch a nerve root. Um, but when we show them with precision what their pain mechanism is and then how to engineer a strategy around it to bulletproof themselves, now they're empowered. They are fully in control and they get confidence 
through movement competence. Did you follow the logic? Yeah. Now their anxiety goes. So if you want to give someone uh, relief from anxiety, shift the locus of control to them. And uh, that's precisely what we do. And then the next time they have pain, they're able to say, ah, I know why I got pain. It wasn't random. It was I violated the principle. Now I paid the price by getting pain. So I learned pain is now a teacher. And they become less victimized by this random thunderbolt that comes down and strikes them into pain. It's no longer random, and uh, it's very precise and specific. So you've now empowered them, and their anxiety goes away. So the, the, the practice of spine hygiene is uh, is. Uh, uh, really, really important. And, you know, I know there are those who say posture doesn't matter, but again, it's it's context-specific. The more, shall we say, uh, fragile their back is, uh, the more important the way you move is. Or if you're going to deadlift a 1,000 pounds, you better have good form. There's no excuse. You get, you get hurt when you have bad form with heavy loads or high speed. So technique is everything. Um, but uh, as I said, we, we take away the, the, this victimization uh, feeling that they have. Why me? We in, instead, we empower them with a strategy to avoid the pain. Now, kind of off topic, but still on a topic of pain, do you ever go over like a nutrition with your patients through that giant intake? Like, because I've seen a lot of times the people that have poor diets, and it almost seems they take a little bit longer to recover from an injury too. So I'm kind of curious if you ever bring up nutrition and better eating. Uh, I have to say that yes, sometimes. Okay. If they are uh, uh, thin and frail and undernourished, that will become a topic of conversation. Uh, conversely, if they're the opposite, they are impeded by their weight, then the nutrition will uh, come a topic uh, as well. Uh, obviously, when I'm dealing with high-performance athletes, all kinds of supplements might uh, come into the equation as well. Okay, fair enough. Um, so the next thing I wanted to go into is also your opinion on different treatment modalities because there's so much stuff out there nowadays from you know IMS dry needling, acupuncture, cupping, rock tape, instrument assisted, and I'm just kind of curious of your opinion on those modalities. Well. Uh, I'll start with two words. It depends. And for such a question like that, I would have to uh, look at both sides of the coin, put, play, take both perspectives. So um, as I said, we don't perform those procedures. Uh, what we do is we assess the cause and then try and eliminate it. No procedure does that. It simply treats what the outward pain or dysfunction appears to be, but it doesn't address the cause. So obviously the key is to address the cause so that these procedures aren't needed in the future. That's how I would answer that on one side. But now I'm going to take the other side. Say we've done our very best for a person who's uh, quite frail, 
and uh, it doesn't take much to trigger their pain through to a high-performance athlete who is going for uh, some elite performance. It might be on the tennis tour, the golf tour, might be in uh, a sport like weightlifting, it might be in uh, fighting, for example, being a cage fighter. Uh, we give them strategies to avoid the cause. However, um, if some rock tape around patellar tendon and into the muscle allows them to perform with a 2% enhancement, that's a good idea. That's the difference between becoming first and 10th. Uh, to modulate uh, training intensity or performance, uh, I, uh, I will do that. So I have quite a cadre of uh, clinicians who perform procedures who I send uh, athletes to. I mean, for example, uh, if you're a Canadian sprinter, you will know Dr. Bell. Dr. Larry Bell in uh, Aurelia, who isn't too far from me, you can hang out at his clinic and you'll see sprinters come in from around the world. Why? He pulls out a little bit more speed from them with, with, with some of the procedures that we're talking about. So there's uh, a good example. I had uh, a double Olympian, summer and winter uh, Olympics. Uh, I was able to uh, reduce, uh, well, I, I was able to eliminate the mechanism of their back pain. However, they still had a residual reverberation in quadratus lumborum that I didn't have the skills to deal with. I sent them off to a soft tissue guru, and in three treatments, it was gone. So these are all examples. Uh, if, if all the person does is procedures, I will have a problem with that. However, if they can eliminate the cause and get the big picture right, uh, sometimes this fine-tuning makes all the difference, as I said, between first and tenth, or first and being on the disabled list. Yeah. Yeah, like at the clinic here, we tend to use a lot of rock tape for our CrossFitters, because it's really hard to tell them to kind of take a step back with the amount of volume they do, but the moment we place a tape on whatever's kind of their area that's giving them heck, like... They almost feel like they're invincible, and I almost think it's like a psychosocial thing that you place a piece of tape on them now, they feel invincible to go into their next, you know, wad or whatever competition they're doing. So it's kind of interesting seeing like, you know, the general population trying tape for the first time, and you know, sometimes they're like, ah, oh, it didn't really make a difference, sometimes it does make a difference, but for some reason the CrossFitter community, like you slap some tape on them and they just feel invincible. <laughs> Well, there's, uh, they're a very special community. I admire them a lot. Uh, there's probably a few more uh, issues going on there. For example, have you ever met a type B laid-back personality at CrossFit? No. No, that's no. selected to, to create, to, to get a very uh, hard-driving A type personality and uh there's there's they, they pay attention they're uh anyway i'll i'll leave it at that but th there's certainly a whole personality profile around that uh, athletic uh, group but uh, isn't it interesting how behaviors and Injuries cluster around specific sports. They cluster around specific sports because of the mental demands and toughnesses, 
and the uh, training regimens, like certainly the body types cluster around uh, something like CrossFit or, you know, you won't find a, a horse jockey in the NBA, uh, to use a very extreme example. But uh, all of these things form patterns, and when you understand the patterns, you, you get better at converging on uh, efficacy. Now, the fact that I brought up CrossFit, I did get a question from the chiropractor that I work with because we see so many CrossFitters, and they all kind of have the same kind of qualities of being really posterior chain dominant and all kind of have the same low back pain where it's almost in like, like that TL junction. And most recently, the Cairo that I work with and I went to the Perform Better Summit in Long Beach, and they had a Cairo in there that works primarily with a lot of extension-based athletes. And he was kind of talking about this idea of like giving them a little bit more flexion-based exercise because they're constantly doing things like deadlifts, squats, Olympic lifts, always going into that extension pattern. And I was kind of thinking like maybe the CrossFit population would need some sort of flexion-based like cat cows and things like that or just getting you know their spine to go into flexion so i'm kind of curious on your take on that well you're thinking kinematics i think you should be thinking kinetics in other words uh if you do a deadlift or a, a power clean or something like that there's no question that's a heavy challenge to the posterior chain, but that's not going to be uh, balanced out by doing a cat-cow. That's passive. There's no challenge there. However, a front plank, uh, and we can load that, uh, would create a similar load challenge to the front. And uh, to create a, what I call a core of iron is usually a pretty good uh, thing to do, particularly in the CrossFit uh, community. So that's balancing up the uh, uh, extensors with the lateral musculature and the anterior musculature in the torso. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, the CrossFitters, when we measure the balance of those, it's not as extensor dominant as you might think. Uh, it may also be that the mechanism of their pain is too much loaded motion in their spine. So are you going to add more loaded motion only in the opposite direction? I think you'll find better efficacy through isometric approaches to creating that core of iron than uh, treating the spine more ball and socket joint. Okay, fair enough. See, we get an argument there about tissue adaptation. You train to create tissue adaptation to be more resilient to the rigors of the sport. The thing about CrossFit is it is a lot of loaded spine motion. Do you really want more in your training? They get enough of that in the sport. Uh, it may be better to create more... Uh, stiffness and toughness in the collagen and the fi and the gooey stuff. It's called ground substance that holds the uh, fibers together. That will make them more resilient to disc bulges. I mean, basically, the CrossFit community, the number one thing uh, or mechanism of their back pain are disc bulges, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so how, what, what, what's causing the disc bulges? Loaded spine motion. So I'd be a little careful of balancing it off with uh, flexion motion. However, I would certainly use flexion challenges. 
So what would be like the flexion, like an example of a flexion uh, challenge? Uh, front plank front, would be okay. the beginning yeah, yeah. Of, uh, of, of that, certain forms of dead bugs. But if yeah. you want 100% neural drive to the abdominals, start in a push-up position and walk your hands out mm. and hold your hands in a bridge, then go to one arm. Now, if you think you're tough, try that. That's I've measured it. That's 100% neural drive to the abdominals. If you do sit-ups and some of those, uh, uh, I forget what they're called. Is it GDH? No. Uh, the, the type of sit-up that the CrossFitters do, they're not as extensor-driven as, as you think. Uh, measure it, and uh, of course, uh, that will that will give you the answer. But um, we, we can drive and challenge the abdominals 100%. Okay. Um, so I also got a couple questions on Instagram that I kind of want to get into. Um, the first one is, interested in how pain is not always a result of any structural or physiological problem, but possibly caused by psychosocial aspects. Ask him his current take on the mind-body connection and its impact on a person's back pain. All right. Well, the mind-body connection, first of all, is huge. However, are you going to think yourself into pain originally? Uh, that's very, very rare. Uh, much more is the case. There is actual existing problems, physical problems, and then the person will obsess and magnify, etc. It's not the other way around. Okay, fair enough. Because um, this question, I mean, I can I can give you examples sure. of where clinicians say, "Oh, well, there's no evidence of structural abnormality," and I look at the. I do an assessment, and then I look at the MRIs, and there's enormous structural abnormality, but the average radiologist misses it. They have no idea that the radiology uh, scans that they just viewed was an Olympic gold medal in weightlifting, or whether the person was a couch potato or an operator of, of a computer at uh, you know <laughs> some office somewhere. They have no idea. Um, however, uh, I've done quite a number of studies. I think of the last NHL hockey strike where, what was that, about seven or eight years ago? Yeah. Uh, when the players went on strike for half a year? Mm -hmm. The young ones went to Europe uh, to, to play and continue making money. The older ones work to heal their bodies. So, you know, I've got some colleagues who are neck and shoulder specialists, and I saw quite a number of them for their low back issues. They came to me, say they played in the NHL 13 years. They came to me with their scans over those 13 years. I knew how many goals they scored every single year. I knew how many games they played. Uh, and then how many games they had uh, uh, were, you know, they were unable to play because of their back. I knew how they trained. I had it all. It was a fabulous study. Now, don't tell me that tissue damage doesn't occur. I watched the tissue damage occur over those 13 years. I saw the pain profiles change. I saw their production in terms of goals change and uh, how many games they were able to play. And yet at the end, a radiologist would look at their scans and be clueless as to whether uh, they were in pain or not. So until you go to that level of watching these things evolve over time, uh, I don't know if I believe uh, people who say, oh, well, there's, there's pain in the absence of structural damage. 
you know, we, we had our tissue lab and we spent years taking virgin spines, cadaver spines, and creating the injuries. Uh, they don't show on x-ray. Sometimes they don't even show on MRI. But when you micro-dissect them, you will see massive damage. So there's uh, some perspectives on that claim that uh, there's a complete absence of damage. Okay, fair enough. Um, I kind of have a follow-up question on that, only because the person who posted that is from a yoga studio. And most recently, like, um, at the gym I work at, we also have a yoga studio attached to it. And a lot of the yogis are coming to the gym side and you know, kind of experiencing lifting for the very first time in their lives. And all of them kind of have the same issue when they start doing barbell deadlifts. All of their low backs are starting to flare up. And I've been trying to figure out why, and I don't know if this is right or if I'm like completely off the rails on this one, but I'm wondering because of how their body's adapted to the sport of yoga, they just tend to extend with their low back first compared to their hips when it comes to like the up phase and the deadlift. And I'm kind of curious if you have any like ideas to why maybe a yogi would not be best equipped to like the gym setting right off the bat well i agree with you uh, i would just have some additional comments to make um to be a yoga master is the kiss of death to deadlift yeah <laughs> because the you have to organize stiffness in your back if you're going to carry a lot of weight down it otherwise it'll be crushed see the spine is a bendy rod so if you want to be a yoga master, that's fabulous, but stay a yoga master. Uh, in order to become mobile in the spine, you have to adapt a very uh, flexible spine, which means the collagen fibers that form the disc, because they're not a ball and socket joint, they're collagen fibers held together by ground substance. You practice end range of motion and it will become more flexible. However, it became flexible because the ground substance between the collagen fibers became more viscous. So now when you deadlift and you don't have perfect form, uh, loading a bent disc causes the nucleus, which is now under high pressure in the yogi, to seep through between the layers of the collagen and eventually it'll seep through and form a disc bulge. So, you know, you used the perfect word when you said adaptation. You adapt your body for specific things, but you cannot adapt your body to be stiff and be a power lifter to take the extreme of a yogi. I mean, those boys have problems scratching their ear. They're, they're so stiff. But yeah. that is what the adaptation is that allow them to put basically a car on their back. You put a car on the back of a yogi and they'll fold up and, and collapse and be crushed. So do you see how you can't have it both ways? Yeah. But definitely. I don't know what a trainer is thinking by giving a, a yogi a deadlift. That, that's, yeah. that's just mismatch of uh, athleticisms. If the yogi wants to be strong, uh, they should start off with uh, things like uh, bird dogs and, and uh, planks and that kind of thing, and then get into a light load carriage, things like uh, suitcase carries and things like that. But to pick up a barbell off the ground when you're a yogi, it's so polar opposite to what their body is adapted to do, they're asking for trouble. Yeah, I would agree with you. Like, because 
eventually the yogis that I'm like thinking about asking this question, they all ended up wanting to train with me and I was like, just like anybody, like I want to take you through the foundations before I give you something a little bit more aggressive like a barbell deadlift and after you know a couple months of doing the things that you actually mentioned, um, no more back pain when they're trying to do deadlifts, which is great, but yeah, like polar polar opposites. <laughs> Well, you're very wise. When you get a person to change athleticisms, you start by getting the movements right first. And then when you have perfect movements in whatever the new uh, sport that you're trying to adapt for, then you can start with load and speed. But you got to get the movements right first. Oh, 100%. Um... A folded up yogi spine and a deadlift, uh, you know where they're headed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so the next one is um, uh, How can one work on remapping the brain to not consistently search for the pain? Because it was a follow-up question to that last one. Oh, that's a huge, yeah, that's a huge question. Yeah. That's a fabulous question, actually. There are some people who have the personality. Uh, you show them how to reduce their pain sensitivity, and they do. And yet they still come in every day. Oh, uh, I'll say, how's your pain? And, and and they have to think about it. And they have to search for it. And I said, no, if, if, if you can't answer the question, the answer is you don't have pain. <laughs> So, you know, you're searching for it, and, and th- that was how they defined themselves. So it's a great question that I don't even know the answer to. Uh, I would work with the person as an individual and decide whether uh, give them uh, something that's very joyful in their life to do that they completely forget about their pain, or... Uh, again, uh, depending on their personality, I don't know how I would go about that, but if we had the person in front of us, um, sometimes I might have to shock them a little bit and, and, and really show them, look, you don't have pain, um, and I'll, I'll maybe get a bit rough with them and uh, do something with them to show them how robust they are. And then it finally hits home to them. Wow, when I follow the rules, I am robust. I'm, I'm liberated and empowered. Um, but again, in, in, until I had the person in front of me, uh, I, 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 I don't know. Oh, fair enough. Um, the next one is, uh, in regards to the healing and desensitizing timeline, what variables, aside from correctly identifying and removing your individual pain triggers, uh, account for the varying timeline to recovery from back injury and or neurological sy- uh, symptoms? Well, that's another fabulous question because the literature is so confusing here. There are uh, compensation boards, for example, the compensation board where you're from in BC, I don't know if it's still this way, but years ago they used to say if you had back pain after six weeks of their program, uh, the pain must be in your head because tissues heal within six weeks. But the studies that showed this were of rodent muscle. So when you damage a rodent's muscle, it, it heals within six weeks and becomes functional and non-painful again. That wasn't on back tissues. I'm going to give you an example now. Say you have an M-plate fracture from deadlifting. Maybe it hurts, maybe it doesn't. But the disc now loses a little bit of height and its ability to contain the nuclear pressure inside the disc when you're doing the next deadlift. 
then slowly over time as the disc flattens, it starts to bulge a little bit. Now, as the disc loses height, the facet joints are carrying a bit more load. The physical therapist gives them, because they have a disc bulge, floppy push-ups. Now they start grinding up the facet joints that are already taking too much load because the disc is flattened. Now, in two years down the road, you've, you, being the therapist, has created an extension-intolerant facet patient. So do you see the cascade? It's not like breaking your leg. When you damage, uh, even at the micro level, a spinal joint, it kicks off a cascade that can last for years. So uh, I, I gave the example of a bone bruise uh, at the beginning of the podcast in the person's lamina. I told them as they left the door that bone bruise today typically takes three to four to five months to wind down that bone sensitivity. Um, when you get edema in the vertebral body from an implant fracture, that can be painful for a year to a year and a half. That's well documented in Bill Morgan's book on uh, MRI function. Uh, what is it called now? MRI of the lumbar spine. There's a word in front of that, and I forget. But it's a fabulous uh, MRI interpretive guide. Um, nerve pain, sometimes you can take it away in a matter of two or three minutes. If you can find uh, a posture, it might be prone lying, for example, for a patient and uh, show them a few breathing exercises where they can change the subtle curve on their back and vacuum in the disc bulge. If it's dynamic, sometimes they can be vacuumed in quite quickly and they stand up and all the radiating symptoms are gone. So there's a resolution that could take three minutes. So do you see how it's a fabulous question you're asking, uh, but I'm giving you some scenarios with the cascade that goes on uh, that it could take a few minutes I've had some people who've completely eliminated their back pain and, and never got it again through through their understanding of what the trigger was and the avoidance of the trigger. Others take time to settle it down. Others might have a nerve root adhesion from post-surgical scarring. That's called arachnoiditis. That's a terrible thing to have and, and committed to life of, of having very substantial radiating pain. We'll, we'll put that in the shit happens category, given the name of your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe for one of the last questions, because we're coming up to our time here, I'm kind of curious myself, like, what is the one question you always get that you feel like you've been, you know, answering for years? And then what is the one question you wish people asked you? Well, I don't know the answer to the first question. Okay, fair enough. Uh, if a person asks a question, you have to honor that. And, uh, you know, I, I can't dismiss it or wish anything, whether they ask it or not. They've asked it honestly because they're in pain. So I, I can't answer that one. Mm -hmm. um, what do I wish they would ask? Um, again, I sometimes have to direct a person uh, they'll tell me about all of these things that they do, and they ask me to basically wave a wand over them when their question should be, can you give me a precise understanding of my back pain, and then can you give me a strategy matched to that to wind down the pain and then show me what I need to become pain-free and back to enjoying life again? Okay. And what about a question you wish coaches would ask you? 
Well, again, are they a coach of an individual athlete and we have a very specific case and strategy to follow or are they responsible for a team? Is the team a bunch of kids or is the team uh, going to the Olympics or are they a professional team in a league or are they, uh, you know, an MMA team out of a a gym? Uh, I'd have to know. For sure. Uh, Yeah. But uh, generally speaking, uh, volume of training is important. Proper rest is important. Uh, good form is important. Uh, in terms of the people I see with back pain, and then building an appropriate torso or core. I mean, I hate the word core, but it's I, I can't really think of a better word. Do they have a core that's up to the task for the sport and the training that they have to uh, partake in. Awesome. Um, So maybe for the very last question, if people wanted to find out more about you and what you do, what kind of resources do you have from your website to your books or anything else you want to throw out there? This is your time to shine right now. Well, all of our approaches are detailed in my books. For the lay public with back pain uh, who can do a self-assessment of their pain and then start on a strategy to wind it down for them, I wrote Back Mechanic. It's available on Amazon and it's also on our website called backfitpro.com. If they're a coach, uh, I wrote Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. So that's for the athlete and the coach, or just the savvy, savvy lay public who want to uh, train to better performance. For clinicians, that was the first book I ever wrote 20 years ago. That's called Low Back Disorders, and it describes how the spine works, how it becomes injured, thoughts on uh, preventing or reducing the risk of pain, thoughts on beginning rehab, uh, etc. And I, my most recent book I wrote with Brian Carroll. Uh, Brian uh, held the world record in squatting. It sounds like a funny event, but it was one of the powerlifting events in two different weight categories. He came to me with a horrific injury, and we ended up writing a book together of how he recovered from a split sacrum, massive disc herniation, and a really heavily damaged L5. And... Uh, uh, it, it demonstrated the power of mechanostimulation to adapt those tissues over the following two years and to prove that it worked. He came back and won the Arnold's powerlifting competition the, the, the next two years. So uh, it was his story of uh, how he did it. But as we started to write, we enjoyed each other's company so much. We've become terrific friends. Uh, it now has become a manual for the strength athlete on how to recover their strength following back injury. Awesome. And if one wanted to follow you on any kind of social media or your website, what would that be? Well, I'm not a social media person. In fact, my daughter runs all of that, and they tell me she does a good job. So we have an Instagram. I believe it's BackFit Pro. Yeah. And uh, we are, we're also on Facebook for BackFit Pro. But my whole take on that is uh, we have to deliver content. So I'll, I'll give her content. And somehow she puts it on how, I don't know. <laughs> But uh, I honestly, I, I, I don't really look at it myself. Oh, fair enough. But 
I'm, I'm far, uh, you know what's so interesting? I do see the odd conversation on Facebook by people who claim to know things. I've never met a master of the craft who's on Facebook. They're all out being masters. So <laughs> I don't know if that gives you any thought on this, but I, I just don't have time for uh, computers. I've got too many people who are asking uh, very seriously to change their lives. Fair enough. Um, I just want to close this by thanking you so much for your time. Like this was literally like a dream come true for me, and hopefully my audience can see the benefit of just reading one of your books. But yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for all you do. All right. So next up, we got episode 207 with Eric Helms. This is the second time that he's been on my show, and he never disappoints because he just says this huge amount of knowledge when it comes to nutrition and training and I was so fortunate to have him on my show again to have another most listened episode he's just so filled with knowledge and I could literally just talk to him for hours without end so without further ado here is episode 207 with Eric Helms so like kind of like the first question I would love to get you to answer is like Give us an update of what you've been working on because like i think it's been i think a year now since i've had you on my show and like what ha- what has happened in this past year for you yeah well it's cool to be back on first so thanks for that i yeah. do appreciate it um so the past year 2018 was uh, was pretty big um i had the opportunity to collaborate with uh with omar isa from 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 kaizen so that was pretty cool. Uh, that was mid-year. We put together a course on called called Nutrition for Lifters, um, which I just really enjoyed doing because it allowed me to create uh, video content that was a little more, I wouldn't say easier to digest in terms of the, the content, but more straightforward and to the point, more action-oriented um, and, and application-based compared to like my books or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we also finished my books, uh, the second edition of the Pyramids, which we then launched in January. But that was, um, I'd say, it's a big part of last year. I wrote it all that, that in that time period, um, and then uh, solidified my position at AUT as a research fellow. So now I get to work with uh, PhD students and master students. Uh, I really enjoy that mentoring process. So those are all those are all big things. And then uh, starting in December, I actually started my uh, first contest prep since 2011 wow. competing again in natural bodybuilding so cool. i'm excited about that too i really um i really love the process in a kind of weird masochistic way yeah. but you know just that that struggle i think is something that gives yeah. me some meaning so that, those are those are kind of the big ones that are top of mind but there's more than that too i travel a lot because I think the last time I had you on my show, I think I asked you, like, if we're going to do the next show, and you were kind of, like, unsure, but uh, what what kind of made you want to go back into that again? Yeah, I think um, it just took me some time to, to, to feel like I had the the space and, and energy to do it. Um, so I... I've always wanted to get back on stage, but I knew that uh, I didn't have the same motivations I did before. So, um, as much as I preach, you know, like like balance and 
you know, trying to be the best version of yourself and focusing on you versus you, or even just the process, not necessarily even beating yourself, because inevitably we all get to a point where we can't be better than our previous selves, at least physically. Um, I, I think I've been better at kind of walking that walk later now, um, as I've had, uh, probably a revised why, if you will, with why, why I lift, why I'm interested in competing. And I think some of the artistic side of bodybuilding, some of the self-expression, um, and some of really actually truly focusing more on the journey, unless I'm trying to get a pro card or things like that. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, the, the, my priorities and, and how big of an emphasis each one of those, uh, all the reasons I compete has shifted to the point where, um, it really is something that I'm doing a lot more for myself and for expression and, and finding meaning and being part of, um, you know, I think a, a practice that, that, that gives me a sense of purpose. So anyway, um, I think getting to that place mentally facilitated me starting prep, uh, and making it all, all worth it. I say that now, but you know, like <laughs> it's, it's end of, end of January and I've got competitions lined up all throughout the year. So we'll see when I'm hungrier, if I yeah. still feel that way. <laughs> Actually, this would be a good question though. It's like for someone who's kind of new to that, you know, I want to step on stage and they haven't done it yet. Like how much time and dedication would they have to like set aside in their week? Like if you had to put numbers of hours of like training, meal prep, planning and stuff like that, like what would someone need to kind of expect or like kind of set aside if they're, you know, working a full-time job and things like that? You know, it it really depends on what their level of experience is and, um, and how well they've habituated kind of the quote unquote bodybuilding lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, because if you take someone who's a first time competitor, um, you know, they probably should be, you know, weighing and tracking all their food, um, locking it on my, on my fitness pal or some other thing, um, you know, measuring, t- taking, you know, daily weigh-ins uh, and having target weight loss goals and then taking pictures every week, comparing them, and then either with a coach's help or on their own, um, first time competitor, I definitely advise a coach, uh, making decisions about their progress and seeing how far they are to their first show. Um, if you take a much more experienced competitor, they kind of know what their meal plan uh, or like standard way of eating looks like to reach uh, fat loss and, and what's the appropriate you know amount of weight they should be losing at given times, how hard it should feel. They know what to expect in terms of difficulty and um, they know what to do when they hit plateaus and a lot of that it can be a lot more automated. They might just make small tweaks to their, their current nutrition plan. They know how much cardio they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a difference between even the same amount of work that someone is doing in their fourth, fifth, sixth season than their first um, because you don't have to make decisions as much about all those things. You just start doing it. Um, so for me, um, meal prep and eating takes the same, maybe slightly more time because I'm not going out to eat. Um, so I'm just cooking a few more times per week. But, um, but I mean, hell, you spend just as much time waiting in a restaurant as you do to, to, to cooking. So yeah. probably the same amount of, of time away from other things. But, you know, it's different. I don't know. Some people don't consider cooking fun. Some people do. So maybe it's, it's, it's better. I don't know. But anyway, training, uh, resistance training takes the same amount of time, if not slightly less than you would in the off season as a bodybuilder. Um, because at a certain point you're probably going to 
uh, cut your volume a bit. Um, and the only real additional time uh, would be potentially added cardio. Um, and I think that's pretty individual. Um, it can get to the point where you're doing, you know, 30 minutes of cardio daily or, or, or up to an hour maybe. Um, so you can expect an added on average, like three to 10 hours per week uh, of cardio. Um, maybe not that much if, if you're, if you're primarily doing it via nutrition, but, um, yeah, I mean, if you take someone who's never lifted weights before and they decide to do a show, which you should absolutely not do, then yeah, you're adding, you know, seven to 10 hours of lifting weights, three to seven hours, three to 10 hours of, of, of cardio. And then, you know, meal prepping and tracking your food and all that, it sounds like a whole new part-time job. But if you're taking an off-season bodybuilder who is, you know, eating and and, and tracking and and monitoring their nutrition and training already, uh, the only additional hours are the added cardio. Um, So in terms of the hours on paper, not that much. In terms of the added headspace and how much time it takes up, um, it can be... Uh, quite a bit, although I find that the biggest antidote to the hunger and some of the self-doubt and the stress that comes along with it is just being busy and like focusing on everything except bodybuilding and just taking your boxes off and um, assessing your physique and uh, stuff like that on a a regular schedule rather than just anytime you walk in front of a mirror or anything you think about it. So I think some of that requires... Um, kind of like the late gratification and some discipline around what you look at and what you expose yourself to. Nice. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you is like, what's exciting you in the research field right now that you're like, holy shit, this is going to be awesome. Mm, you know, I, I think research is always interesting on the, on the new horizons that are going to be coming out. And um, so there's, there's, there's some stuff that, that I think is going to be pretty cool coming out pretty soon. So uh, Jackson Pios, uh, good guy. He's a PhD student at University of Western Australia. He's conducting, to my knowledge, the only data using diet breaks on athletes, uh, comparing that to people not using diet breaks. So that's going to let us know if some of the data that uh, Byrne collected in 2017 is more or less effective um, using a different population, resistance trained athletes. Athletes, and then also instead of the two-two setup of two low low weeks, two diet break weeks, they're going to have a three-one, uh, which is probably closer to what would be used by uh, by athletes and dieters. So I think that would be really interesting to see if that's as or less effective, considering the diet breaks are shorter, less frequent, but we have a leaner population who uh, probably needs to actually replenish glycogen more regularly and maintain performance and all those things that you would think would benefit from the diet break. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then I'm just excited to see, uh, the general research that comes out in the next couple of years, because there's a lot of people involved in, uh, physique sport and strength sport now who are also involved in academia compared to even just a few years ago. And that's grown substantially over the last few years. So I'm, I'm just really excited to see things like, you know, replication of, of certain uh, studies since we have more robust data around it, uh, more opportunities for meta-analysis, and uh, getting a little more refinement around variables of both nutrition and training. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Sweet. A last question for me, too. I'm kind of interested if you've kind of read up on the... Because I know Precision Nutrition right now is, like, revamping their intermittent fasting book that they 
posted, I think, like, 10 years ago. And I was talking to Chris and Scott Dixon that they've been, like, just shuffling through all the research on fasting in general. So I don't know if you've kind of dabbled in any kind of fasting research. And if you have, it'd be kind of cool to get your thoughts on it. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I mean, I've looked, at, I've looked at a fair amount of intermittent fasting research. Um, that said, I think... I'm not the person who is best for for some of the, the practice around it because I've had you know I have a few clients who use it. I've experimented with myself, but it's been years because it, it wasn't really right up my alley. And this is we're talking like a pure 16-8 or yeah. or every other day. Like um, I do tend to eat a little less in the morning and then kind of backload my nutrients, but it's not fasting. Like I I wake up and I might have like a piece of fruit and a protein bar kind of thing yeah. and then not eat for another three hours. But, um, but that's not technically fasting. So I think, I think intermittent fasting, um, I would, well, I'd love to see more research. I think, um, what people are interested in outside of what they've kind of always been interested in of optimizing body composition and making a leaner physique more sustainable by, uh, modifying their behaviors and making it easier to eat less calories, which is essentially, what intermittent fasting is in terms of its benefits, um, but it doesn't work for everyone. Um, I would love to see more research around it, are there actual like life extension benefits, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon yeah. um, because you have to actually watch someone over an entire lifespan. So unless someone started an intermittent fasting uh, life extension observational study in a large cohort that lived their entire 80 or 90 years of life doing IF versus not, and they're all going to die within the next year, so we can see who, who lived the longest, uh, then that's not going to come out anytime soon. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think people are very excited about, like, rodent data and, and, and markers and things like that, and I, I think those are typically extrapolate quite poorly to humans, so I'd love to see, um, you know, more data on that. I don't know that that's going to happen, but... Um, yeah, I think in general, intermittent fasting should be seen as a potential tool. Like if you have a very, if you're typically not hungry in the morning and you're busy and you, you could be distracted and you can focus on, on life and then it makes it a lot easier for you to adhere to a calorie-restricted diet when you have bigger meals. If all those things converge, then it may be a lot better for you just to delay breakfast, which is really all it is. Um, and... Um, if you are a someone who's interested in like optimizing body composition and maximizing muscle retention on a diet, you can still accomplish that same thing. And instead of just having coffee in the morning, you can have like a protein shake, you know. Um, and I had they even have like caffeine and and, uh, and protein shake like pre-made mixes, but you could just freaking have a scoop away and a caffeine tab and do it a lot cheaper. And then you know it, you're you're still fasting. Uh, in terms of the experience, and I think all the effects would be so similar uh, as to be the same effectively in practice, um, despite the fact you're getting like 100 calories. Like, who cares? Um, that's not going to break your – I mean, you're breaking your fast, but the fast isn't magic. So once yeah. you get away from that idea, you see like, okay, well, if my goal is to maximize muscle retention, there's a theoretical rationale for not going you know, 16 hours without any protein, so maybe I'll have a scoop away in the morning. And that's the only modification I make to it. That would probably be a better one for someone who wants to uh, keep as much muscle as possible. Fair enough. Um, so let's do a little Q&A that we got from Facebook and Instagram. So the 
first one is how much slower will someone's metabolic rate be after losing a significant amount of weight compared to someone who is naturally at that weight? Is it possible to increase it to a normal level or will it always be slower? That's a good question. Um, and we have specific data on this. We have um, studies where someone or a group has either been a short period or a long period post weight loss and whether they've maintained uh, that weight or regained it. Um, and on average, you do see um, uh, some basically when you first lose weight, let's say you reduce your body weight by 10%, um, you very well might see around a 10 to 15% on average uh, reduction in energy expenditure. Now, that's not necessarily metabolic rate. Um, I think it's useful to talk about this in terms of total daily energy expenditure because that's what matters. Um, that's often called quote unquote metabolic adaptation or probably more correctly adaptive thermogenesis because it happens in compartments that aren't just your, your metabolic rate. Um, and there's some data suggests that a lot of it actually comes from neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is not something completely under your control. It's not just sitting down more often or, or deciding I'm going to never take the stairs again. It has stuff, stuff to do with uh, like postural control uh, and calorie expenditure in a lot of ways that are much more subconscious. So anyway, uh, a decent answer would be 10 to 20 percent is, is would cover most people. But if you were to extrapolate those numbers out to say one, two, or even three standard deviations, if you want to cover 99% of people, some people are going to be burning only two-thirds of the uh, calculated or expected amount of energy at their body weight. Uh, those are the, the unfortunate folks who, who probably really struggle with nutrition and maintain, maintaining it afterwards because uh, their, their calories have to get so low uh, at, even after weight loss. On the other flip side, if you go the other direction of those standard deviations, some people are going to see a we're going to be totally pr predicted by the equation or just slightly below it. So uh, the answer is that it's hugely variable. Um, and it does improve after you've maintained that weight. It doesn't go away completely. So it might be, say, 15% versus 8% a year later once you've regained, um, not regained the weight, but regained the calories and spent time uh, not dieting. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a very large component of the uh, quote-unquote maladaptations we see from dieting don't just come from the process of getting leaner. They come from what you have to do to get there, and they do scale with the severity uh, and the, I'll say, the, the subjectively poor approach you do or don't take. So there's um, the that study that gets cited a lot that I think is kind of headline-catching and scary but uh, I think it's persistent metabolic adaptation and a biggest loser competitor or something like that. I can't remember what it is, but this person lost. I mean, if you think about the energy deficit they had to lose the amount of weight they did in the time they had, it's huge. Um, and it's definitely not advised. And from what we know about energy availability and how that affects you, if you are generating a, just a massive deficit and you sustain it for a long period, um, that, that, has a, that takes a toll. Um, and uh, the behaviors that go along with it and thinking like, oh, I need to maintain some semblance of this to maintain weight probably keeps you in this uh, low energy availability state, despite the fact that you might now be at calorie uh, maintenance. So, 
you know, our bodies can, can maintain weight at various levels of, of energy intake. And ideally, you want to be maintaining your weight at the highest amount possible. And coming in and out of your diet periodically as reasonable with diet breaks and maybe even using refeeds to kind of mitigate these metabolic adaptations or adaptive thermogenesis as much as possible. So I would say if you do everything right, if you're losing it, say, if you're lean, uh, 0.5 to 1% of body weight per week, if you're maintaining a high protein intake, if you're doing resistance training, if say every four to eight weeks you take a week off of dieting at maintenance, uh, and then if once the diet's over, you increase calories as high as you can without gaining weight and, and kind of push that envelope a little bit just to see what your limits are. Uh, I would say even in the worst case scenario, if you went from uh, being, you know, with obesity and you come all the way down to a, a more quote unquote normal body weight, um, you might not, you might only be, um, you know, five to 10% less than would be expected. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you might see a persistent 15 to 20% less if you did everything quote unquote wrong. So uh, that, that's the answer is it's individual, but also affected by how you do it. Um, so doing it intelligently and being uh, not only patient, but also systematic and uh, giving yourself breaks and trying to incur the least amount of um, stress in the process is important. That doesn't mean you can't go quick initially, you know, and it doesn't mean someone who has a lot of body fat can't lose a little faster than the rate I suggested earlier. I think there's nothing wrong with losing closer to 1.5 to 2% of your body weight per week if you have, you know, a pretty substantial amount of body fat to lose. Awesome. I love how you give, like, really detailed answers. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to just say something that uh, doesn't cover all the caveats. But, yeah. It's like, yeah, it sucks. Next question. <laughs> um, yeah, dude, you're, you're gonna have to burn as many calories in anyway. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next one's kind of long. So bear with me. Um, I would like to know his thoughts on body recom- uh, recomposition at maintenance for the general pop slash non physique competitor population. Does he believe that is a good option for women, especially older women, forty plus, that just want to look good by the pool in the summer? Can you really build muscle and change the shape of your body uh, eating at maintenance? For example, if after a year of training hard using progressive overload and maintaining the same body weight uh, within a few pounds to account for daily fluctuations, will you see more muscle mass definition and feel more more firm and have less jiggle in your wiggle? (laughs) Less jiggle in your wiggle. I love it. Uh, the short answer is yes, and I think it's actually pretty damn effective. Um, the the thing with body recomposition is that it is like basically eating at or around maintenance. Um, it's the, 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 it does produce slightly slower changes, but the lower your quote unquote training age is, um, the lower your uh, your threshold for adaptation is, uh, and the more capacity you have to see changes. Um, you know, so for example, um, in every study we have that I'm aware of, of untrained individuals where we manipulate their training, we give them a, a resistance training program, but we don't put them into a calorie surplus intentionally, uh, they either uh, gain 
body weight from lean body mass with roughly no change in body fat uh, or a, a similar change in body fat to keep it at the, at the same body fat percentage, right? So there might be a slight increase to keep it as the same proportion of your body, or we see a simultaneous loss of body fat uh, with muscle gain. Um, and that occurs in all of them that I'm aware of without intentionally going into a surplus. Sometimes it means they do just start eating in a surplus as they get more active and they get hungrier, um, but it's not beyond what's appropriate for what they're doing. And uh, that's technically not recomping, but it's not like you sat down and went, right, I've got to eat another 500 calories, I'm going to go buy additional food, or I'm going to get a weight gainer, or I'm going to track macros to make sure I'm in a surplus and weigh myself. Um, it, that I might, I think that's in all practical terms that, that that is a recomp, just training and not worrying about trying to eat uh, eat more and then letting the adaptations happen. Um, and there will be a certain point where um, weight loss slows down because you're not gaining muscle at the same rate and therefore you're also not creating as much of an energy sink and therefore you're not as hungry, so you're not eating as much and you're not gaining weight as quickly. And you can just let that happen naturally. And I think especially for someone who's not a competitor, um, that's a really reasonable way to go. Uh, I think the trade-off for a competitor makes sense because you're going to be literally competing uh, based on how much muscle mass you carry and how little body fat you carry. So going through a period where you gain more body fat than you would like uh, to try to get some slight advantage and be able to put on muscle mass, because it becomes, like I said, harder and harder uh, to gain muscle mass when, when, if any chips are stacked against you as you get more advanced, I think it makes sense. It's still not anything crazy. Like I recommend gaining 1% of your body weight per month as an advanced natural or some, somewhere around there. Um, but for a, uh, a general population person, the differences between doing, say, bulk cut cycles and just lifting weights and, and eating yeah, a healthy diet, we'll say, without any kind of more restriction or, or uh, addition than that, uh, I don't think it's worth it for most people. Uh, and they have to be, like, super, super serious about uh, bodybuilding into the same way that a competitor is. They just don't want to get on stage, and that's the only time I'd recommend it. So I think for, for most people, um, it, it just simply is not necessary. Um, on the flip side, I would say, though, if you're someone who is constantly restricting and constantly dieting, that's not the same thing. Where general population people get into trouble is when they're, con they're constantly trying to diet or get a little tighter, or they have what I would describe as not a great relationship with food, uh, where they are in this kind of cyclical yo-yo dieting state. And then they're also lifting weights and hoping they'll build muscle. That's not a recomp. That's not eating and maintenance. Um, I think you need to focus on getting into a, a better relationship with your food first, and then that, that actually becomes possible. But if you're in a, a frequent calorie deficit, you know, and restricting things and not getting enough protein uh, and, and doing a lot of cardio, that will inhibit your ability to, uh, to quote unquote, recomp. So I think if I take the assumption that this is someone who has a, a healthy, balanced diet but doesn't want to put, in, put, put a surplus uh, in place, uh, and they are, like they said, only been training for a year. I think that's totally fine. And it will make make improvements. It might be slightly slower than a competitive bodybuilder going through uh, organized cycles of surplus and deficit. Um, but the trade-off probably is not worth it. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so the next one, 
Uh, how much does a diet break help mid prep? How much does a deload help? Should you do these at the same time? I think you can, and it's not a bad idea. Diet breaks seem to help a great deal. Um, I've used them with, yeah, I think probably hundreds of competitors now, um, which is kind of cool now that I reflect on that. Um, and um, most of the time, if I use them in a very reactive way, like if I give, if the competitor has enough time, which means if, 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 if they listen to me, they do. If they were hardline, they're like, no, I got to do the show where it's my only one, uh, even though I suggested they need more time to diet for it. So if we don't have enough time and we don't have time to, to, to have plateaus and work around them, uh, my standard use of a, of a diet break is um, maybe the first or second plateau. Like the first plateau sometimes is just like, oh, we just need to diet harder. But the typically the second plateau uh, a competitor hits my response is not to cut further, but to give them a week-long diet break. And more often than not, coming back from the diet break, we see some fat loss on the same numbers that they were on before the plateau for at least another three to four weeks, if not longer. Um, so that's kind of cool, I think. Um, and I see that the competitors who use diet breaks consistently seem to transition better to the off-season. Um, seem to have a easier time making transitions between the off season and the in season, um, probably because they've they've gotten the opportunity to be on lower and higher calories, but still have structure multiple times, um, and they seem to carry a fuller look, maintain a little more muscle mass, um, and and all the above is is every the whole process is better because they've been circling the drain for less of the time. Uh, and as a net uh, dieting phase, uh, typically they can keep their calories higher, which means less of those uh, energy energy uh, deficiencies uh, symptoms is the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Um, and then the deload aspect has to do with a you should do it. Yes, um, especially during a, during a contest prep phase. The deload has to do with managing fatigue. So if we kind of use that basic two-factor model, when you train, you get both fitness and fatigue, um, but you're, you're getting fatigue outside of the weight room because of life stress, and you're not getting as much recovery to mitigate it through your normal processes of eating enough and not necessarily doing as much cardio, et cetera. Uh, you're not as well recovered. So it's really important to have regular deloads during prep, in my opinion, to manage that fatigue. Um, and uh, something that I do with, with a lot of people is I will – have deloads be a little more reactive in the off season. So they, they come when there are symptoms of being beat, beaten up. Uh, however, in, during contest prep, I keep them on a semi-regular regular schedule like every fourth or fifth week or something like that. So um, the times when you wanna make them coincide is when you are just really, really wrecked from prep. Um, you, you're stalled, you're looking worse, uh, you're stressed. Uh, your, your strength is dropping, and in general, you feel a lot of diet fatigue. That's that's a great time to take a deload and then also eat at maintenance to dump dump diet fatigue, dump training fatigue, which are very much the same thing and, and, and look the same and feel the same, except for hunger, um, and come back into it nice and fresh. I think that, that that's something definitely to do. And just don't let your fear get in the way of thinking, oh, well, I'm I'm losing muscle mass anyway uh, because I'm dieting, so a deload's going to make it worse, and then I need to lose fat, and a diet break is, is going to stop that. Um, you're going to end up exacerbating the problem more uh, 
because you have to manage uh, the fatigue and the stress that comes from, from, from a diet to get in the, the right condition without looking like you're very stringy at the end. So if you want to maintain your muscle mass and your sanity, I think that's definitely, there's a good idea to do diet breaks, good idea to do deloads, and they should coincide sometimes if you are really racking up a lot of fatigue. Awesome. Uh, so the next one, is there a recommended maximal amount of sets per workout, or should you add on sets as long as you're able to recover from it? I've been running a program what initially had about 20 to 24 sets in one workout, but over the last month I've added one to three exercises per workout, bumping the total amount of sets two to 30 range. Is this okay as long as I feel I'm able to recover and progress? That's a good question. So first, I would say that um, there, you do get to a point where there's diminishing returns on the number of sets you do in a given workout. Um, we have actually data that goes back decades on this, uh, looking at uh, two-a-day training. Uh, when you see some outcomes in well-trained strength athletes that are better uh, when they do two workouts in a day instead of one with matched volume. So they're getting meals and recovery time between them, and all of a sudden, uh, the, 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 their, their adaptations are, are more efficient, which shows you that, yeah, if you do too much in one session, you're gonna kinda get this point where the quality starts to, to drop off, uh, and therefore the adaptations get worse, and you are having to recover from more acutely. Um, so I think that data there shows that yes, concept of you can do too much in one session, which I think is pretty intuitive if we all think about it, um, is, is, is true. Um, there's not like a hard, fast rule. I think it very much depends on what type of training you're doing, uh, how good a shape you're in, and your individual recover, recovering recuperative capacities and your lifestyle that supports that. So um, like the, the question asker uh, kind of hinted at, it is based on how it feels. Like if if you're feeling fine, you're not like, it's not turning into a Rocky montage and you can still bang on sets, you're motivated to train uh, and you haven't seen any large drops in strength on similar movements, then go for it. Um, that said, I think as a general rule, um, based on what we've seen from frequency studies, there does seem to be a measurable impact of going from training each muscle group once per week to twice after that, the effect is much smaller and less clear and largely dependent on manipulating volume within the week. Um, so it seems like with the kind of volumes that are done or are recommended, um, training each muscle group only once per week is probably around reaching too much for most people. So if you're doing 10 to 20 sets for a single muscle group in a single workout, that's probably not advised. You'd probably want to split that up into at least two workouts where you spread that volume over it. So for example, instead of doing, you know, chest on Monday, back on Tuesday, arms on Thursday and legs on Friday, you might simply go to an upper lower, upper lower, uh, so that uh, you, you can have two opportunities to split up that chest work, uh, back work, shoulder work, arm work, leg work, et cetera. Um, going from there to an upper lower, upper lower, upper lower off, and then having even less volume per body part per session, um, that probably won't make as, as big of a difference as that first jump. So I would say so long as you're training each muscle group twice per week uh, and you are increasing the uh, number of sets really only when you need to, like if you're not progressing, 
uh, and you are monitoring your motivation and your quality of training and your performance within a workout, then, then, then it's probably okay to increase that so long as you're, you're focusing on all those things. Sweet. Um, so the next one is if somebody is training early in the morning and he has not so many calories to play with, when is it more important to eat a meal containing protein and carbs pre or post training? Yeah, I mean, I think the carbohydrate aspect of this is pretty individual. There's very inconsistent data as to whether or not um, pre-workout carbohydrate has an impact on resistance training performance. Um, and this makes sense if you look at it like resistance training, um, it, like if you do a, a high volume bodybuilding workout, at most you're going to be depleting local glycogen of those muscles by like 40 percent which is going to get completely replenished even on like a moderate carbohydrate diet, even in a slight deficit by 24 hours later. Um, and if we kind of go back to the question I just answered before that, you're probably not going to be training that muscle group in most scenarios, at least for another 72 hours or maybe 48. So um, the rate limiting factor of glycogen is not really the rate limiting factor. And it takes a while for glycogen to get stored anyway. So even waking up first thing in the morning, um, while your like liver glycogen will be a little lower, your muscle glycogen will be fine. Um, so you probably just want to make sure blood glucose is stable and get in there, uh, and that can that can happen with just having protein, you know. So I would say if you're limited on calories and you have to train first thing in the morning, I would probably just go in on a scoop of whey, um, since you have been not with a meal for for the entire sleeping period. Um, it's the reason I recommend that and I don't worry too much about peri-workout protein at other times is because you're almost always in the postprandial state, the, the period while you're of, of digestion. So if you think about it, if you're having four meals per day, let's say you eat at 8 a.m., noon, uh, you know, 4 p.m., and then 8 p.m., and you go to bed, the, the, the digestion time for most foods and the fact that you're eating mixed meals means that for all, all the time until you're maybe – three hours and three or four hours into your sleep schedule, you have circulating amino acids there. So the build and repair process can start immediately if you train any time during the waking hours. Now, the one time that's not the case is if you were to wake up and go right to the gym with nothing in you because uh, you've had you know half a nighttime of sleep of not having uh, much in the way of amino acids circulating. So it's probably not a bad idea if you're training first thing in the morning to at least have some whey uh, or, or some, some protein source. All right. Uh, so the next one is, uh, does Eric Helms consider vertical pressing to be a must exercise for bodybuilders for developing the shoulders since all presses hit the front delt or they could get away with chest presses and lots of rear and mid delt training? Yeah, I think... The kind of the assumption there is that a, a vertical press only trains the front delts, since therefore it's equivalent to any other press. But a properly done uh, vertical press is actually going to hit all three heads of the delts. Yeah, it'll be a little more dominant towards the anterior, but anterior. But like if you're doing a uh, you know a seated dumbbell press with your back straight and you're actually keeping your arms pretty far back in external rotation, uh, you're going to have a fair amount of medial delt activation. Um, and uh, same thing with a little bit of rear delt. Same thing if you're doing a barbell press uh, and you're actually, you know, getting your head through the keyhole and pressing up and behind you. Um, so I think um, barbell presses and 
and dumbbell presses and overhead pressing are definitely one of the recommended movements that I would have in almost every bodybuilder's program unless there was an injury contraindication or, or um, a lack of mobility or, or something that prevented them from doing it. Um, you can definitely get away with not doing it. Um, that's the cool thing about bodybuilding is you can be creative. You can find a, a way to, to progressively overload any tissue. Uh, you could do front raises, lateral raises, and rear delt raises and um, only do flies, but uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I do think if you can do an overhead press safely, it should definitely be a staple uh, in your program. Um, there's no reason not. And it's very difficult to, it takes time, let me put it this way, for someone to effectively do you know, a lateral raise um, because there is. Uh, Who do you want to send it to? I said lateral raise, not Siri. Apologies. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, performing lateral raises is something you will see most people in the gym just do wrong. Um, you know, they. They're really easy at the bottom and hard at the top. And when you see movements like that, or you're at a biomechanical advantage that's super distinct like that, another example is a row, where it's super easy out here and gets harder and harder as you get close to you, that's when you see cheating. Um, so lateral raises become these kind of drop things right at the top. Um, you know, uh, rows the same thing. And when you see the convergence of the, the, the peak tension point and the hardest point, uh, happening, that's when you see movements get less effective, in my opinion. Like when you're in the most contracted position in, in the lateral delt, that's when you're going to be cheating the most. And in in when it's at its peak tension, you're actually cheating. So that, that's the case for both rows and lateral raises. And those are the, the most abused accessory movements for bodybuilding you typically see in the gym. Um, and I think that's probably one of those things that that you don't think you're doing wrong, but you're not doing that great and you could improve. And so if you're not overhead pressing, like what's left, you know, you got crappy lateral raises and bench. I, I don't expect good delts to be developed from that. So I think it's probably not a bad idea at all to have uh, overhead pressing. If it, you can do it safely in your program as a staple. What, what do you think about the landmine press? If someone couldn't press overhead? That's great. Um, the, I think that's basically, um, if you can't press overhead, which is true for a lot of people, like with my, I have actually have a neck injury that, that I only do very light and infrequent overhead pressing. Um, I like to use machines or light dumbbells with a full range and focusing more on the, uh, the quality of the movement being super strict just to make sure my neck doesn't uh, get pissed. Uh, but anyway, the landmine press or let's say a very high incline neutral press are things I've used for people with, with shoulder injuries. And the downside to that is that basically uh, the further away you get from vertical, the more the less it's going to be targeting the medial delts and more more the anterior delt um, and, and, and upper pec. But um, that doesn't mean that it's not a good replacement. Like yeah. it depends on what your purposes are. If your purpose is to build a super symmetrical, great muscular physique and get on stage, I would probably be like, yeah, landmine press is okay, but maybe you should be focusing on really high quality lateral raises and then just a more straightforward like incline bench or something like that. But if the person's goal is to be, you know, generally fit, then a landmine press is great because in real life, you're never forced into a position where you have to lift something directly over your head. You know, you're lifting things onto, onto like you're trying to create fitness. And, and I think that's perfectly reasonable. Like you need to train your strength in the ranges of motion you have. Uh, if your goal is 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 fitness for life versus you know symmetrical maximal muscular development everywhere or 
competing in strongman or, or CrossFit that requires strong overhead strength or something like that. So I think uh, look at the demands of, of, of the athlete or the, or the client. And uh, if there are no overhead pressing demands, landmine press is great. You know, you're allowing them to move in the, the closest thing possible in a safe way. Uh, and the same goes for any other variation. If the goal, like I'm assuming based on the question is as jacked as possible, then then it might be slightly different. Yeah. All right. So maybe for the last question, because we're coming up to our time here, is uh, if someone wanted to learn more about you and what you do, where can they find you online? And also maybe like your social media and like any other projects you have coming out or anything else you want to plug on my show, you can do that right now. Well, thanks, man. And uh, I would say the one-stop shop would be 3dmusclejourney.com. So that is the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. From there, uh, you can find links to the Muscle and Strength Pyramid, uh, my books, along with Andy Morgan and Andrea Valdez on, honestly, my life's work as far as nutrition and training. Second edition's just launched. Uh, you can find the link to Mass, Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Uh, that's myself, Dr. Mike Zerdos, and Greg Knuckles reviewing uh, basically nine pieces of work every month uh, related to uh, strength and physique athlete type of goals or recreational or competitive. Uh, and those are publications peer-reviewed that we are reviewing, both in uh, video and audio format and written articles. Um, and you can find links to, and that's also where I write a blog every month for 3DMJ, and you can find the link to our podcast uh, where I'm on three-fifths of the episodes. So, um, yeah, it's a ton of information all there, so that's probably the best one-stop shop. And then uh, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. That's I'm not very active on any other social media platforms, so uh, that, that's, that's where if you want to see my nonsense on a daily basis. So Awesome. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. All right. So next up is a special episode, episode 223, when I started interviewing some of my clients that are pretty inspirational. So my number three top listen track of 2019 is my client, Brina Richardson, which is just a powerhouse of a woman when it comes to achieving their goals with being a mom at the same time and working a full-time job and I just had to get her on my show so this is a laid-back episode at her work over beers this is like it was such a fun episode to record so without further ado here is Brina for episode 223 but uh yeah so I try to keep this as casual as possible and then like you can literally just talk as long as you want. Like, <laughs> yeah. Those are the best guesses. Like, if you feel, ever feel like, oh, I talk too much, that's crap. Like, you want to be able to talk a lot. Um, so maybe to get started, let's go with uh, an easy question. Who are you? What do you do? <laughs> and just let, let's let's get to know yeah. you a little well, bit. Cheers. cheers. Yeah, there you go. I'm Brina. 35-year-old mom of three, awesome. um, restaurant manager by afternoon, evening, and then by day, i mom and Awesome. Um, so the cool thing that, the fact that I'm, like, interviewing who I think are, like, basically rock stars, because I find that when you interview professionals, especially 
like fitness professionals have never gone through like a struggle themselves because like a topic I bring up in my podcast is a lot of coaches getting into coaching because they played a high level sport they were always athletic their whole life and they think oh I'm going to become a pro NFL CH whatever they want to do but what usually happens they don't make it and they're like oh I'm going to become a trainer and I can train the pros but they end up working at like crunch fitness and working with like Sally Sue mom of three and they don't know how to like connect with that person and then they go spilling out advice that can't really connect with those individuals so it's kind of cool being able to talk to someone like you who've like I think you've figured out life (laughs) and like seen results so Maybe let's talk about your journey to start this thing from the very beginning, like before kids and, you know, say even before kids was like going to the gym or priority back then, or was it just like something like, yeah, whatever, like, let's just start there. Well, it was kind of just, I don't know, uh, you, you know, you're in high school and, you know, your weight is pretty manageable. You don't have to worry about those kinds of things. And I always said to myself that, when the time comes for me to start working out, I'll know it and I'll start doing it. And when I was 26, I was literally scrolling on Facebook and saw an ad for a boot camp and was like, oh, I think I'm going to join that. Nice. I joined the boot camp, started going three days a week, and it just kind of snowballed from there. just made sure that I made the time every, you know, three times a week, went to my classes and enjoyed it. Saw results, you know, it took me a couple months to really notice it. And then yeah. once, you know what it's like, once you kind of start getting in the zone, you yeah. just keep rolling with it. And then it just became part of my lifestyle. Okay. So. I think another good thing is, well, how old were you when you had your first child? I was 30. Okay. Almost 31. Because, like, did anything change when you had your first kid, like, health-wise? Did you kind of put a baby first and mom second? Or did you, like, you're like, screw that, I'm always going to be number one? Ah. <sighs> good question. That's a tricky one because I think the answer is that I've always made myself a pretty high priority in my life and I worked out until I was 38 weeks with Lincoln so right to the end was seeing a trainer so I just knew that yeah you like you can't pour from an empty glass or whatever they say so maybe having kids when I was 30 kind of made me have all those years of being selfish and getting to do whatever I wanted so that when the time came when we were at the point where we were like, okay, we're going to have kids now. This is going to be our life. We both kind of, like Dylan and I, knew that we were going to, you know, make sure we still had our own lives outside of just the family. Sure. Um, the fact that you trained through your pregnancy, was did you have, like, how many kids do you have in total now? I have three. Yeah, okay. <laughs> did, like, th- through those three pregnancies, did you train on each one, or was, like, one little less, the other one was a lot more like... The first, Lincoln I did was the most obviously okay. diligent because I didn't have any kids at home. Yeah. So I could work out in the morning for an hour and then go home and eat and then lay down on the couch and take a nap and yeah. then get ready for work. Yeah. And then with when I was pregnant the second time, I still was seeing my trainer, but it was just kind of a little bit more relaxed. And then I started having some hip pain and then I just kind of pulled the shoot yeah. about 27 weeks and then didn't get back into it until she was, my second one was a couple months old. Okay. And then with Roger, I was pregnant when I joined Aura. Yeah. So I was kind of doing my thing there as well, but on like a, just kind of whatever worked capacity, not Mm -hmm. like, you know, having it, this is what I do. And now I'm just, uh, yeah, (laughs) kind of found a good pattern and 
just yeah, rolling with it. Yeah. Do, do you think like training while being pregnant made a difference when it came to like delivery? Well, see, you know, and I thought maybe you would ask me yeah. that because it's a tricky question to answer because I don't want to offend anybody who, you know, a lot of people maintain healthy lifestyles and end up having a C-section. Yeah. But I had all three of mine naturally with no drugs Jeez. and quickly. So there's something to be said about that. Like maybe all the squats I did mm-hmm. helped me get get through it. It could also be just hereditary because my mom said, oh, you're going to have no problem having these kids and it happens. So yeah. it's, and I don't know. Like, it's, okay, I don't enough. know for sure. And it's interesting because like the women that I've trained that have gone through a pregnancy, like I think, I don't know if I told you this yet, but one of my clients, she, I trained her on a Thursday night and she gave birth on Saturday morning. So like, Honestly, the only thing we, like, modified is, like, obviously the intensity, but, like, she was able to do, like, almost everything, and I'd always kind of check in, like, how you feeling? She's like, yeah, I'm fine. And even that Thursday night, I'm like, you're really close to your due date, because I think her due date was, like, the day before. And I even, like, called her, like, that night, that day, and I'm like, are you still coming in? She's like, yeah, why not? One last. Yeah. And I was like, when she came in, I'm, I, like, we were, like, the only ones left in the gym because she was always my last client. I'm like, if your water breaks tonight, it's going to be quite the experience for me and you. But uh, I, I honestly think it has a huge, huge effect when it comes to, like, the actual labor. But that's something I'd, like, want to look into. But... I think for the most part, if you're exercising throughout your pregnancy and you've had a kind of like a background that does help in some shape or form. When like, yeah, like I did prenatal yoga mm-hmm. with all three and like just learning the breathing and stuff. I think that that helps as well. Yeah. Right. Cause you have to breathe and it's, there's so much going on and yeah. you just have to know that it's going to be over <laughs> hopefully, yeah. hopefully soon. But like th- those are the small things that people don't even think about. Like breath work is huge, right? And like, even in my industry, so now breathing is getting like so popular that like top athletes are looking at it whereas i remember like five years ago it was pulling teeth to get a male learning how to belly breathe or learning what the pelvic floor is and it's like especially for guys who get hernias yeah it's because they don't know how to activate their pelvic floor and breathe with it right so doing those small things add up a lot at least i think but um another good question would be like the recovery process, especially like going to your first pregnancy, like what did you notice change in your body? Like what were some things that you were kind of like surprised about? Like you can go as much detail as you want because like I've had a lot of women on my show that have been pelvic floor physios and like you've talked a lot about prolapse, you've yeah. talked about like everything so you don't have to hold back. <laughs> it's kind of all blurred together now, all three of yeah. them really, but just... I think, you know, when you're pregnant, you have that, your belly's all big, it's still tight, and yeah. like, you know, so you, you're growing, but you're not loose, and then after the baby comes out, you're just still like, kind of a, a mess for a little bit. Yeah. And just knowing that you need to take it easy, and like, it is, you know, recovery, breastfeeding is an obstacle as well, yeah. right? Another thing that you have to deal with. But I think that, for me, after the babies, I didn't really think about that too much, because you just kind of get into what I call like a baby fog. Like okay. it's all about the baby, you know, yeah. and you're just like boiling nipples and <laughs> soothers and, you know, making sure that you've got his favorite toy and all yeah. of these things that are just kind of consume you that, you know, it's not until a couple, like month or two after you have the baby when you kind of get out of the fog and then you remember, oh yeah, yeah. Like, I'm a person too, like, you know, time to go shopping or yeah. get back in the gym. 
and kind of get back into your own routine. But yeah, for the first little bit after, you're just, I don't know, right? You just yeah. went through some crazy trauma, so you're just yeah. trying to take a shower right every day. No, fair enough. Um, I think the other thing too is like, did you ever like deal with any kind of like body image issues? Oh, big time. Okay. For sure. Because, yeah. you know, before I had kids, I was wearing crop tops in Vegas with my girlfriends, like yeah. just having a good time, like worked hard for it. It wasn't like, it just came easy for me, but yeah. Yeah, and then having yeah, and then having that that mom body, and then having to like you know, I don't know, it's a different scene, right? Like you're more conservative, I guess they think yeah. you're supposed to be, but you're also just on the fly all the time, so you don't really have time to look cute. You're just throwing on whatever leggings fit and whatever yeah. t-shirts clean, yeah. And then trying to get to the baby time or whatever activity you have planned for the day. But definitely, yeah, like when summer comes around and you're getting ready to go to the pool. <laughs> And you're going off like this is not this is not yeah. a, like you know and it's all in your head because everyone else is like no you look great or whatever yeah. but I don't know for me it's just it all goes hand in hand right like when you feel good when like when you look good you feel good yeah and working out gives me like a lot of like reward so it's mm-hmm. not just all about looking in the mirror although yeah. it's not like you know it's a nice kickback to the whole process for sure sure. Like, if you had to give advice to a new mom, especially, not only just for, like, body image, maybe that can be, like, the first part of the question, but, like, going through the whole process, because, like, having your first child is, like, what the fuck is going on? So I'm kind of curious on, like, your end, like, what would be your advice for dealing with body image issues after your first child, and then, like, what to kind of prep for? I think, like... Beyond even just body issues, I think for a first-time mom, she needs to get out into her community and find the other new moms with babies the same age and connect with them mm-hmm. because the value you get from the friendships you make from those people are insane because they're all going through the same things. Like, who else cares about your kid not taking a shit for five days besides the mom whose kid just shit after seven yeah. and can give you that relief that you need? So... Like even Jen, for example, right? Like we met when our kids were babies and we've always just had like a little sounding board community group that we, you know, ask questions about and we all kind of, now the kids are almost five and we're still utilizing the, the group. Yeah. So. So I find like a lot of new moms tend to kind of like just want to stay home yeah. with the kid and like, it's like you're almost like dragging them out to actually go into the public. And I'm kind of curious, like why do women kind of fall into that kind of category? Like. What's kind of going through their head, do you think? I think a significant amount could be postpartum depression and anxiety. It's hard to get out of the house. You're afraid to go in the car with your baby. It's all like, you know, like the environmental things that could happen while you're out there. Like it just can be a lot for some moms. So I know for me, when I first started getting out, I would start with little steps like pre-packing the diaper bag the night before. Mm -hmm. So all I had to do was get us ready and then prepare the bottles or whatnot and then we could go. Or sometimes like, because you don't have time. Get the baby all dressed in a sweater, hat on, buckled in the seatbelt, and then he barfs all over himself. So then you're like, okay, well, I'm buckling you, change you all, and yeah. you're going to a half an hour program. So it is a lot of work yeah. just to get there, but I think that it's really important to have a, a tribe or a crew of people to yeah. be there with you because you are alone. So, I mean, social media is taboo, but yeah. at the same time, for like moms at home, like sometimes it's your only outlet to the, to the world if you are dealing with a bad sleeper and you're trying to sleep train and you are like literally handcuffed to your house yeah or if you have are having depression or anxiety and you don't want to get out you know at least there are still people who can check in on you and 
you know, like your pictures or, you know, just yeah. little things to kind of keep you going through the day. Yeah. Yeah, like some of the like moms I know really struggle. Some moms it just comes easy for them. Every baby's another journey. Yeah. So, how, how was it when you had your second child? Was it like easier for you? Did you kind of like know the routine? You're like, oh, this is not going to be as hard as the first one, or was it a whole game changer? It was a whole game changer. Okay. Like, you don't know what mom guilt is until you have your second child. Jeez. Right? Like, because Lincoln was only one and a half when I had Paris, so. He's still basically a baby, needs yeah. me to do everything, and I'm just getting pulled in two directions, and you're just trying, you know, like, trying to do the best you can. And, like, you kind of start to accept it after a while that, you know, it is what it is. You get used to the sound of crying a little <laughs> bit more than with your first when you're just, oh, my God, everything, like, I'll rock you to sleep every night, sing yeah. that one stupid song over yeah. and over and over again with your second. Sometimes you just have to be realistic that this thing's, like, prioritize what needs to be done. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, For the guys listening, what advice would you give them for their wives going through all the hoops and hurdles of pregnancy and then giving birth and having a newborn at home? Because, like, I just find, like, the typical guy, they just don't really understand. So, like, what would be the best way to kind of explain to them, like, what they kind of have to do to kind of make the process a little bit easier, if that makes sense. Well, I think with your first, you're both just so green to it that you kind of are going through the journey together. Yeah. But then by the second, it's just more of that, like, just support. Support with the kids, you know, helping clean up. Just, I don't know, just kind of, you know, taking on a role in the household that's more than just making money, I guess, you know? And, like, checking in, seeing how you're doing and I know sometimes it's impossible to you know work mm-hmm. give the kids a bath yeah. change laundry and also be like oh Brina how was your day blah 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 like it's yeah, just yeah. you know like we can only take so much before our brains shuts off and it's yeah. Fortnite time or you know housewives time or whatever it is yeah. that we need to veg out at the end of the day Jeez. okay the other thing too is like now that you have three kids I'm still impressed how you find the time to like do everything. So again, everyone's going to be sleep deprived with even one kid and now you have three. So like my question is like, how do you find the time to actually like slot in a workout or even two in one day while still maintaining a household and those three little rugrats? Well, I do have a lot of help from my family. My parents help me with the kids when I'm working. And if I'm getting my hair done or there are things that I want to get done, like they're pretty good to help me out. My brother will help me too. And my in-laws have two of my kids right now. So I definitely take on the help that is there and appreciate it tremendously. So without them, a lot of it wouldn't happen. But I don't know. I think it's just, you know, accepting that some things aren't going to get done if you want to get what you really want done and then just prioritizing it. So I have a cleaning lady. She cleans my house once a week, so nice. that takes the pressure of that off for me. Yeah. I order my groceries online and pick them up, so that saves me time doing that. Mm-hmm. And Aura has childminding, so yeah. I can just bring them all with me and yeah. do my thing, and they are pretty, pretty happy in there. So that's definitely like the game changer that yeah. I can just bring them with me. Do you, Do you find like some mothers don't want other people's help? Like they almost want to like take on that whole. I wouldn't say burden, but the whole responsibility of taking the child under their wing and not being able to be like, 
here, mom and dad, you can take care of my kid for a while while I go do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Well, and I think it just depends because since my parents do watch the kids for me when I'm working, I don't like to ask them so much for my leisurely thing. So sure. I'll hire a babysitter if we want to yeah. go out for dinner or do those kinds of things because my parents are already helping us so much on like the level that we actually need the support. Yeah. But I don't know. It's hard to say right like some could be postpartum anxiety too right some people just don't feel comfortable some kids are just really attached to their parents yeah I mean it was just a couple weeks ago where Paris had that meltdown in the child mining and I had to leave before the class even started so you know kids have their moments so if your kids like that all the time why would you put yourself through all the time to pack them up get ready drive them to the gym or drive them wherever like to wherever and they're not gonna stay anyways yeah but so for like, how does your week look like? That's what I'm kind of curious about. Like, say like Monday to Friday, like the regular work week. Like, what does a day in the life for you Alrighty. look like? Well, I usually wake up to a kid in my bed, and then another one screaming, or one, or no, I mean not screaming, you know, calling for yeah. me, beckoning me. Yeah. And then, as much as I'd love for them to like, oh, just lie in bed with me for a bit. No, the middle one wants to go downstairs. Yeah. Want to go downstairs, so. Make them breakfast. Usually have a coffee that gets like four sips drinking out of. Mondays are a little bit more relaxed because my son only goes to school on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So if we're lucky, we'll make it to skating. But usually Monday's a little bit more of a down day. And then I just come and see you and then do yoga after. But then I do have to have dinner made and then like usually the kids fed Mm -hmm. and Dylan's food ready so that I can just run run out the door when he gets home. Tuesdays, I have kind of <laughs> juggled my days, so my friend's husband will take Lincoln 10 minutes or leave to school so that I can make it to a class wow. at the gym, but now I have had ballet for the last two months when so I can't go to that class, so yeah. that changes everything. Plus, Roger naps at 10.30 every day, so I have to be home by then if I can, Yeah. but he kind of gets the brunt of it a lot because he just gets dragged along with us wherever we're going. But now then I've got work in the mix, too, so now I'm working Wednesday to Sunday, Yeah. typically, and then seems like that. Try to go to the gym in the morning. Try and get groceries somewhere in the middle. You know, take the kids to my parents, or if I'm lucky, my parents will come to my house and watch them for me. And then off to work, do all the rounds for work, pick up the liquor and produce. <laughs> you know, superstore run. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, like, do you live off of like some sort of schedule, or do you just kind of react to the day? <laughs> I would say. About like 75, 25%, like 75% I know what's going on, 25% sometimes I just have to like leave it up there. Like I had an RMT booked with Tom on Tuesday and the kids had skating at the same time, but I just was like, you know what, my parents will like, they're going to, I know they'll help me out once I kind of lay out a plan for them and kind of like figure it out. And it all kind of worked out and I got through it together like on, (laughs) on, in the morning that day. Awesome. Where other times I'll have everything kind of, you know, super lined up but then things change too yeah like today I wanted to do like the bar class with Laura which is like super intense but when I yesterday my legs were just like kind of feeling tired so I was just listened to my body and uh decided to some staff coming in we're doing this at my work by the way so so I just listened and I did the solar class instead because so that and it worked out better for my schedule I think it's just I don't know. I'm just kind of rolling with it. Yeah. It seems like it's working for now. I know things will change soon, so... Oh, fair enough. Just whatever seems to work for the time being. 
I think a good question too, like, because I've seen it happen a lot where a new mom will have a kid and it delays her longer than when she's supposed to come back to the gym. Because it's like typically like six to eight weeks, you should be able to go back to the gym if everything's all good. But a lot of times it's like a big game changer in your life. And, you know, rather than six to eight weeks, it takes three months, six months. Maybe I don't even see that person for a year. You have another baby. Right? Yeah. And then that happens again. Or like they get injured. And it kind of keeps like prolonging. And like, I want to say it's like excuses lining up on top. But it's like another thing that they need to like prioritize to, before they can even go back to the gym. So if you had to give advice for new moms or just moms in general trying to get back to like a schedule and going back into the gym and not falling off the wagon like what's a good way to kind of get there without just falling off completely that's tricky too it it is yeah i know what you mean like there's no like one answer yeah just like for for me it i think it has to do with why are you going to the gym like, are you going there just because you want to lose the baby weight? Or are you going there because when you push yourself as hard as you can and you make it through, how does that make you feel? Like, the way that it makes me feel when I go into a class or into personal training and I work 100% effort, like, it just, I don't know, like, the, it makes me feel good. And then I can take that positivity and then push it out for the rest of my day because mm-hmm. I know that... If I can take that on, then everything else is going to be easy, you know? No, fair enough. Like, I think the big thing is finding your why, and I've said this on my show so many times, because, like, even if I get just a regular new client and they come in, like, I want to lose 20 pounds, and I'm like, why? Well, I want to look better. Why? Well, because I divorced my wife, and we have a trip coming up where we're going to take both of the kids, and I want to look better than her okay, now I know why you want to look better and now we can kind of go to her. But a lot of people in there just like, oh, I just want to lose weight. They tend to fall off the wagon quite a bit. And like, I always try to steer people towards a goal and it's not necessarily weight loss, but like just feel better, move better, yeah. like find more reasons. Like I've seen so many times where I've had clients that are older and they have grandkids and they're on like blood pressure meds, on this medication, this medication. And I'm like, your goal should be able to be like off your medication, be able to like go play with your grandkids. Yeah. But uh, yeah, now I'm kind of going on a tangent. But um, I think finding what motivates you and like just sticking to it. And like when people kind of start, and if all the chips kind of fall in line and they see this small little bit of success and it only gets like addictive and then like kind of what you were describing of like that feeling of giving 100% and you were able to is like the most amazing feeling whereas if you were just starting trying to do the same intensity you'd get defeated pretty quickly but like being able to like push your body like I think that's like the most amazing feeling for like anyone who exercises being able to push yourself and have that feeling of like oh my god I did it but uh it's sad when I can't see that with some people when I start training them they just don't really get it until they've actually experienced it but uh, I don't know where I was going with that but hopefully that makes (laughs) sense yeah Um, another good question like speaking of body image issues like what should especially for the male coaches because we have a lot of male coaches listening like when a female client says oh I look fat in these pair of pants or 
my ankles are too fat or like, oh, this part of my arm is still fat. Like, what should a male coach say in those situations if you had something to tell them to kind of like switch in their head? Well, I guess it just depends on like what, like where you're training, what, like, you know, if you're at like She's Fit, you're going to see sure. more of that. So yeah. maybe if that's not what you are looking to be dealing with, you might go somewhere else. Because I've had female trainers where, I don't know, like, I'm not, I've never really, like, been like, oh, I'm just one, and, like, lose this yeah. here or not, like, because I see the big picture, right? Like, it's not, yeah. you can't just, like, diet off your, you know, your, like, your flabby arms or, like, lift <laughs> yeah. some little weights for, yeah. but I don't know, it's, I think that I would just maybe start focusing more on, like, like, your goals in your head, yeah. you know, like, it's, like, start out with, like, how many days a week do you want to be here? It doesn't matter what you're doing while we're here, you know, just get here, you know, yeah. like an hour of movement, still an hour of movement. Yeah. And then, you know, once you kind of just get into your routine of coming and showing up and doing your thing, then you can start progressing into like trying to target things that you're working on because until you're committed to it, it's just the trainers wasting their time, you yeah. know, just take, you know, get their successions and just move along like yeah. I wouldn't even invest in it personally because yeah, right? yeah. you know that they're going to be like well I saw this guy eight times and nothing changed but yeah. you know I went out for drinks with my girlfriends every weekend yeah. and so fair enough know. like I think when it comes to that like I think a better question would be like, like you just said like you don't really care about like oh this thing's not that like tight or toned like where, where do you think that stemmed from because like I've trained a lot of women in my day and like it's like a half and half like some just don't care how they look and they just know what they need to do and the other ones will say out loud everything that's wrong with them so this might be like a question to like really dig deep like where how like where did you get your confidence from? Like, where did you learn that life trait where just, like, depicting every single yeah. little thing of your body doesn't happen? Well, or it does. I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, even when I was younger, like, I'd always been, like, a confident person. Like, self-assured. Like, yeah. you know, co like, not, like, conceited, but, like, cocky. Like, like I didn't really give a shit what anyone had to say. Yeah. People were messing with people. I would stand up for them. Like, didn't have a problem, like confronting adults, authorities, yeah. like I just didn't care. Yeah. And then obviously as I get older, I become more of a humble person. And you know, you just like, you let a lot more shit go because it just doesn't matter. You know, like when you're 16 and you're fighting with your parents and everybody, you're just like, yeah. rah. And I don't know, like it just, I had a pretty, pretty fun time when I was growing up and yeah. just, I don't know. I just, I guess here's a good example. like. You just have to try and make the best out of everything, too. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of shitty situations happen in our lives, and you can dwell on them, or you can be, like, you know, miserable, or you can just try to make the best out of it because, like, we're still here. Yeah. You know, you get stuck going on a camping trip with your parents, and you don't want to go. You can mope in the tent all day, or you can put on your bathing suit and go and play with the kids and, yeah. you know, run around and do things because, you know, like, you still got to get yeah. through the day. So, I don't know. I think I've just kind of always been fairly positive, but I guess not, like, 24-7, I guess, yeah. right? You know, like, I don't wake up with, like, rainbows coming out of my ass. I wake up <laughs> yeah. and, oh, my God. Yeah. It's time to start the day already. <laughs> Jeez. Um, do, would, you, would you think, like, your parents kind of led you in that direction? Like, because you said you're, like, 
you said fuck authority and everything like that but like did your parents kind of see that in you and they just went like no this is her personality we gotta let that grow do you think that might have like contributed like we're getting possibly deep they didn't really i don't they never really held me back on anything like yeah. they always whatever we wanted to do they were for it like when i was 21 i was like i want to go on a backpacking trip trip and i was getting out of a pretty shitty relationship and my parents mm-hmm. were like go help me book my ticket they sent me over there they were just like this is going to be yeah. the thing that changes their life and it may very well have been right because yeah. you came came back like just like well you know if you can do yeah you can travel by yourself you can do anything by yourself 100 percent. and i don't know it's hard to say like you know like i just kind of always been me like I've never really tried to be somebody else or yeah you know caring but also like don't fuck with me yeah understanding and empathetic for sure to people you know I was like I think because I care about people that makes it easier too because people see that and I get treated pretty well by pretty much everyone in my life so it makes life easier too I guess yeah I think like my biggest fear of becoming a parent one day is like doing that one thing that will like screw up your kid for like life and I'm just like hoping that you know any of those situations where like your situation when you're 21 got out of the bad relationship you're like yeah I want to go travel not being that parent like no like that's fucking stupid you know what I mean that could have like changed the course of that human's life um where am I going with this? I don't even know, but I'm kind of curious, like, what kind of values do you want to kind of instill in your kids while letting them, like, flourish and grow into the human beings that you want them to be? I think you just have to just roll with the punches a lot with your kids because yeah. they're all so different and they need different things from you. Yeah. And we all make mistakes with them, you know, like, they do things that frustrate me and, you know, sometimes you overreact and then... You're immediately apologizing, or sometimes you overreact, and you're not. You're you're still angry about it. Yeah. So you just think, yeah, I don't. You just have to, yeah, like take them for who they are and what their needs are. Yeah. So me coming back to work in this last month, my my middle daughter has been having a lot of separation anxiety issues. So crying when I'm leaving, needing like ten hugs, ten kisses, bawling your eyes out, <laughs> having to come back in the house. Yeah. And it's. It's hard. Like, the first time she did it, I went in the bathroom and started crying. And I was like, I don't have time for this. Like, I got to go to work right now. Yeah. And then I think, so now just making sure that she's prompted with enough time to know that I'm leaving. Yeah. So that she can kind of accept it. But at the same time, she's with my in-laws having the time of her life and doesn't care that I'm all the way over here. (laughs) Jeez. Um, I think another thing I wanted to bring up, too, is... Like, I kind of get the sense from you, like, almost being a competitive person. Because, <laughs> like, this is the second challenge. And for, like, the listeners who don't know, at my gym, we do something called the Aura 90 Challenge, where we basically, like, encourage people to come to the gym as many times as possible and post it on social media like crazy to get free advertising and then give them free shit. But um, the first one, did you end up winning it or getting second? I got second. Place. Yeah. And now this third, the second um, Aura 90 challenge of this year, like, you're definitely crushing it. So, like, where do you think, one, does this competitive thing come from? And when it comes to exercise, like, why do you think it's, like, pouring gasoline on the fire on this thing? Well, I think when we did the first challenge, I didn't have any interest in doing it. Because I'm like, it's the summer, like, we're going to have fun, like, it's all good. And then... My girlfriend, Nicole, she said, I'm going to sign up, sign up with me. 
And then, yeah, like once I freaking signed that piece of paper, it was on. Because I, that's and that's because I don't know, right? If you yeah. commit to something, you go for it. Yeah. And the fact that I started seeing results so quickly that first time, mm -hmm. I was, you know, just kind of kept steamrolling. So when the second one came up, it was nice to just do the feed your soul side where it's not about physical results. Yeah. It's more about what you're getting, like, you know, spiritually. Yeah. And I'm just really enjoying that yoga part that yeah. I'm just kind of learning now. So it just kind of tied in well. And I, I don't know, I want to win, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. I want to win. I like pushing other people to try to win too, you know? Yeah. Like, just be there, right? I like, it's a really good vibe at the gym, you know, it's like a nice place to be, so it's yeah. not like it's a hard sell, yeah. you know, getting up and getting there. Yeah. But, I don't even know, like, it's just, just, it's just kind of part of my life now, right? Just getting up and going to the gym every day, so it's not, uh, it's just nature, you yeah. know? As soon as I wake up, I'm like, okay, like, get the kids fed, get the kids dressed, we're going to the gym, mm -hmm. get, go home, like, it's just, it's not a big chunk of time, and the way that my schedule works, so yeah. it's easy to manage it. Okay. I think, like, that's a big, big, like, thing for people being successful in the gym is finding a gym where the culture and environment makes you want to come back. Because if you go to, like, any big box gym, like, there's nothing really drawing you there unless there's, like, you had a friend that you always went with. But I think what we do really well at Aura is, like, every person there is like they have their own like kind of unique thing to the table and like that's like almost everyone says is like the atmosphere here is like amazing so i think because our culture is so like down packed and like honestly i always use the word bulletproof like people want to keep coming back which is huge so anyone listening find a better gym if you don't feel motivated to go but um the one thing i want to touch on is like the difference between the two challenges, because for the listeners who are listening, um, the first challenge was like your run of the mill, like come work out in the gym, lose a bunch of weight, and just like any kind of transformation challenge. Whereas this year, because now we have a yoga studio and a spin studio, we have two separate challenges, one for the physical and one for the spiritual, which is super cool. And my kind of question for this is like, what have you learned between the two challenges but I'm more kind of curious about more of like the feed your soul challenge. Like what has switched? Cause you were like literally like a gym junkie and now you're like yeah. on the yoga side and like totally digging in it. So I'm kind of curious, like what kind of attracted you to that side and like what keeps you going? Well, I think even like the first class I did, I was like rushing to get there. I was running late. I was all stressed out and frazzled in traffic being like, oh my God, like this is like just all, you know, going sideways. And then as soon as I got there, everything was cool, you know, like, you know, because with yoga, you want to respect the practice, like, yeah. going in late is kind of a no-no, and I'm yeah. not, I'm really going to stick to the rules, so, you know, I wouldn't want to just be, like, you know, creaking in and slamming through. But then I went in and did the class, and at the end, Kim just kind of said something about slowing, slowing down, and then how we try and rush through life, and the majority of the time when you're trying to rush, you miss so many things along the way that you end up having to go back and do them again. Yeah. And it just like hit me like a truck. I was like, this is me. Like, this is like, this is like what I need in my life to like, still getting my workout, but it's like finding some like actual like time for myself where the f like four minutes you lie down before the class, like and at the end of the class, like really goes a long way for my busy day, I guess. Yeah. And 
like the workouts are still freaking insane. So you're getting yeah. like full benefit and then you get that little bit of like that mindfulness. Yeah. But I don't know, like and I'm finding like in some of the classes, like solidify especially, you know, I went in with this expectation that I was gonna just like, you know, be like, oh this is amazing. And the first yeah. class I did I just like was so wound up on my expectations that it just didn't really, like I just couldn't turn it off. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a combination of practicing more yoga, which is making me better at turning it off, or if it's just the time, like timing and everything, but like you really, if you buy into what they're selling in those classes, they really are like so beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, like I find a lot of people, like in the beginning when we opened our gym and we had the yoga side, it was very quiet in the beginning. It took a long time for people to kind of trickle that way because, like, you, you almost have to be, like, really open doing a yoga class, especially, like, the more spiritual ones. And, like, that solidify one is, like, it's a huge one. And for most people, they would kind of look at it as, like, uh, this is kind of woo-woo, like, this is kind of stupid. But, like, if you ask anyone, like, when was the last time you took a minute, closed your eyes and, like, took a couple breaths? Mm-hmm. Like, it they can never say they've ever done that and if speaking to like coaches and things like that to make it more like uh, scientific like if you look at yoga a lot of the classes like just the breathing like again like we're going back to the breath like being able to like learn how to use your diaphragm and your pelvic floor like all the stuff that you learn in yoga can translate easily to the gym Mm -hmm. and more but it's just being open to like finding something inside you that would be like okay no I'm gonna let go of my judgments and just like go for it but yeah I don't know oh uh, yeah like I think that you just you know if you want to buy in you're gonna get yeah. value from it if you think that it's all like you know hokey then it's gonna be hokey yeah. to you and you know I don't go into every yoga class like you know coming out all zen sometimes my brain won't shut off and then after a little bit, I just accept that that's where I'm going to be at for the day, yeah. for, that, for that class, and just steamroll with it because, you know, you can't, like, change your, you know, you can't change it, right? If you're yeah. having a race brain day, you can't just flick the switch off, so yeah. might as well just accept it and, you know, just truck along. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, because we're coming up to our time, maybe for the last question, if you had to, like, Give some parting words or like words of wisdom to all the moms listening, trying to get their shit together. Um, what would it be and why? <laughs> I think that you just have to remember, like at the end of the day, like you matter. You know, like you're allowed to love yourself. You're allowed to love yourself as much as your kids, as much as your husband, if not more, sometimes, and just take care of yourself. Um, if that doesn't necessarily mean going to the gym, it might mean going for a pedicure. It might mean you know, going out for drinks with your friends. Just, you just need to remember that, like, you matter. And as long as you're taking care of yourself, it's a lot easier to take care of everything else. And, like, that's pretty much it, right? Like, just love yourself and, like, know that it's okay to, you know? With, accept your flaws, accept your faults, accept your bad days, but just, you know, like, you are who you are, so own it, love it, and live it, right? <laughs> I don't know. Amazing. Honestly, that's, like, the yeah. best place to just ended and like again thank you so much oh, for doing this thanks like, for having me it's yeah. uh, an honor <laughs> all right so next up number four we got episode 221 with annie christensen who is another 
person in my life that's not a client but is a member at my gym that I work at that is literally there every single day and crushes workouts like you wouldn't believe and at the same time running a full-time business and crushing life day by day so I had to get her on my show and she was like a breath of fresh air she keeps it real opens up about everything in her life and it was such a good episode and no wonder this was the top four of my most listened in 2019 so without further ado here we go um so maybe what we can do to get started because this is kind of cool this is the first time that i'm like at a guest's house welcome right okay um so it's super cool for me but uh maybe to get started introduce yourself Tell the audience what you do, okay. who you are, deep down inside. <laughs> oh, God. That's another podcast. Yeah. Um, my name is Annie, but you probably heard that in the intro. Um, I am a 28-year-old wife for Mama. Tell them how cute my dog is. Super cute. I love dogs, honestly. Do you think it'll catch him sniffing it? Maybe. Um, I am an entrepreneur. I own... Well, I own, I guess, three businesses, but I've put them under one roof. Um, And then I'm all the other things, a sister, uh, auntie, daughter, all that good stuff. Okay, perfect. So I'm really excited because when I posted on Facebook that um, I needed suggestions for um, guests, someone mentioned that it would be awesome to hear everyday people going through the struggle of fitness and health and I was like that damn that's like a brilliant idea yeah and like I started like thinking of who I should get on that is like just an amazing individual that's going through the process um and like first person that kind of actually popped up was like you I was number one yeah you were yeah that's amazing yeah so like what's interesting about this is like I don't, you're not one of my clients. I just see you at Aura like every single day, which is like freaking amazing. And you're like, your personality type is like, I, I, I can't even put it into words because it's like, you just come off as like the most approachable person. Just people love to be around you. And uh, I don't know where I was going with this, just like you're awesome. But um, let's kind of get started to how you first started at Aura, your whole journey. How did you first start getting into the gym? Oh, man, that's a loaded question, and I could answer that so many different ways. Um, I've done it all. I've done the $8.99 a month gym, gym memberships. Um, I've been to some boutique gyms. I've been to more, like, CrossFit-style gyms, um, the big box gyms. I've, I've done all of them. The one month yoga pass. Yeah. Um, and I never really felt at home. And I didn't know what I was doing. I would go to the gym where you pay $8 and just try and figure out what to do on all the machines. And I, and I, I just didn't know. So because of that, I never saw results. Um, I never felt great after I left because I probably did nothing. Um, and it was just kind of a waste of my time. Uh, in when did I join? It was just my one year at Aura, so in Congrats. February. Yeah, Congrats. thank you, yeah. thank you. Um, I was in a dark place in my health journey. Uh, I had a personal health journey kind of come up. I don't want to call them 
complications, but it was definitely discouraging. Um, my body wasn't working the way it was supposed to. Um, I had definitely some bad body image issues, but it was more like anger within myself. And um, how did I? Brendan. Okay. Brendan yeah. at Aura nice. invited me and my girlfriend to come try it out. I was at another gym in Langley, but it was a bit too intense for me, the style of workouts they were doing at that time. Um, and they were talking about yoga and spin, and I was like, okay, those are all great things I should be doing right now. Didn't know at the time, but it was going to be several months down the road <laughs> until, until they actually put those programs in, but that's fine. So yeah, it was Brendan. He invited us to come try it out. Um, so we did. It was in a, the warehouse. It yeah. was like a warehouse style gym at the time. Um, and the first day was with Coach Mark. If you don't know who Coach Mark is, yep. his biceps were like, they're as big as my thighs. I walked in there, people were yelling. It was super intimidating, yelling like training, not yelling at each other. It was super intimidating. Um, my girlfriend didn't end up joining me, uh, but I did stay. Uh, I made it through the first class. And the moment that I knew that I I kind of found something that was going to be okay, even though I was absolutely intimidated by the trainers because you guys are all in phenomenal shape. Um, Mark, he sat down on the floor next to me and taught me what a dead bug was. Simple movement, mm -hmm. but I couldn't figure it out. And he literally like stopped the class and took a moment just to show me. And that's where my journey began. Awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of people when they first kind of get started they like typical thing where they try so many different gyms and it it's a process to find what really really kind of goes with your own core values and like the story with just mark and i think all the coaches at aura are like that are like they'll spend time and if they see something weird they'll like go over to you like hey how does that feel not good all right let's do it this way instead right yeah um and i think for a lot of people like the intimidation factor like you just kind of have to get through to your head that everyone starts there, right? Like it's, it, it sucks. It's like going to a party that you got invited to, but you don't know anyone there and you're like, I really don't want to do this. Absolutely. But like when you get through that actual hump, you're like, oh, this is not that bad. <laughs> Absolutely. And I had even like less experience than the average person. I did not do PE in high school. I was totally excused from PE. I, my sport, I, I, I did enough activity that, that I got free credits basically. Um, so I had never lifted a barbell before. Yes. Like I didn't know what a barbell was. Even to this day when we have medicine balls and we're supposed to throw them at the wall, like people are used to playing basketball. They learn those things in high school. I didn't. Nice. So it was like not so much an intimidation of I was comfortable enough in my own skin. Um, I didn't feel like I compared myself to too many people. It wasn't intimidation that way, but it was the like the mental game. Like Annie, you can throw a ball. Like yep. it's gonna be okay. <laughs> That's a hustle. Yeah, yeah, like like all my clients that I started with, they all kind of came from the same background. Like, cause I primarily just train women. I don't know why, but I just like, it's 90% moms, which is like awesome. Yeah. And like most of them never played a sport in their life. And 
when they kind of get into the rhythm of coming every single week, I start throwing small stuff like like that that's more athletic. In the beginning, they're just like all over the place, but after a while, you just kind of get used to it, and then eventually, you're just like a pro. You're an athlete, essentially. You are an athlete. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I wanted to kind of touch on too is like, because I, I can't remember what episode I was talking about this, but like most people look at the gym and exercise as like I have to lose weight, but exercise is so much more. And like for you coming from kind of like a dark place with health issues. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, if they change that mindset, it's like, I'm not going to the gym to lose weight. I'm there to actually just improve my health, changes a lot of things. So now you don't have like a timeline of like six weeks, I'm going to lose 40 pounds, which is like not realistic. Whereas you're just trying to improve your health. Um, And I just find like when people start exercising and they see the benefit, they're like, oh, I'm sleeping better. I can like take on more stress and like, Things are just clearing up, and I'm like, oh, who would have thought exercise was good for Amazing. you? Amazing. Um, but maybe, like, because you also mentioned um, body image issues, and I've mm-hmm. spoken about this topic a lot with other people, yeah. so I'm kind of curious on your end of things. Like, I, I just think in general, women have, like, such a high standard they need to meet, but when it, yeah, it's, like, ridiculous, but... Um, I'm kind of curious of your, like, your whole take on that whole issue. Like, what do you think about body image issues for women in general? And then maybe we can talk about Totally. Yeah. So that question just makes my heart sink. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a bit a loss for words because it's such a huge issue. And for someone like me to speak to it, yeah. um, I watch it happen. We live in an era of social media. I know it was an issue before, um, but I didn't actually, this this might sound crazy because I live on the online world. That's part of where my business lives. I, honest to God, did not realize that the average everyday girl were Photoshopping their images to change how they looked. Like I thought that that was something for like, the Instagram famous or the celebrities, they were getting their photographs airbrushed, but a girlfriend showed me a picture of one of her friends that I've seen before in other photos, and I was like, I was blown away that we're doing that, that we have uh, such, I guess, low self-esteem that we feel the need to present ourselves that way. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, if you look back in, like, the 90s when we had the old school cameras where you just, like, you take one photo and you don't get to see it until you have it developed. Yeah. Whereas, like, now, it's like you take a photo with your phone, you look at it, no, we're doing it again. And you, like, keep going and keep going. Whereas, like, yeah. back in the day, I don't know, like, this is just, like, thinking out loud. I think maybe back in the 90s it was a little bit better where you just take a photo and you're like, oh, that's how I look. Okay, awesome. I'm going to go put it in a photo album, right? Totally. Whereas now you have... And the world isn't going to comment on <laughs> yeah, that photo also because it's it's on your shelf at home. Yeah. That's that's the tough thing with like social media is like that one photo you see that you're like, oh, I wish I could look like X, Y, and Z yeah. is like the highlight reel of that day. Like it's not how the person looks every single day. It is not how I look at 8 a.m. at the gym. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> yeah. 
But if you had to give advice to women out there dealing with their own body image issues, like what are some things that they could focus on? Because like yeah. again, there's no perfect answer because everyone's a little bit different. Yeah. But like, I uh, so and I want to focus on both ends of the spectrum. Um, I'm by no means a teeny tiny thin girl, but I do have a small frame, and the the comments that we make towards each other, I guess, is what the the advice. Okay, let's 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 sure. roll this back a little bit. Um, the advice I would give is just to think before you speak and before you make comments online. Um, something that you might think is a compliment to that that girl that maybe is a size two. Um, or that you think might be a compliment to that girl that's a size 14, it might not actually be a compliment. Um, so I guess just just think twice about what you say and how how you say it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fair yeah. enough. And like the other thing for like... I sell clothing. Yeah. And I'm constantly, there's pictures of me online and clothing. And it, it, so, yeah, the comments, just be careful. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like, for me, as, like, a coach, when I start working with women, they all have, like, I want this number to go down, I want this number to go down, and I try to change the conversation where, because I don't believe weighing in women at all. I'm like, just yeah. get rid of the scale, because there's never been any person in this world that stepped on the scale, and they're like, fuck yeah, that's <laughs> the number I want to see. So, at my Aura <laughs> Challenge weigh-in, I asked to not see the number. Okay. I have no yeah. idea what I weighed yeah, it at. Good. Yeah. Because, like... Uh, one of our other Aura members who just posted, like, her eight-week transformation. Yeah. Um, she, like, obviously changed, like, a lot because she's one crazy coming in, like, three hours every day. But um, she weighs the same, and she looks completely different. Yeah. Right? And, like, one of the stories I think I've said on my show a couple times is where when I was at my old gym, I had this one woman where... You know, she dropped, I think, two dress sizes and she wanted to get weighed in. And I'm like, no, I don't want to weigh you in. It's not going to be a good idea. She's like, no, 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 I can take it. And she ended up stepping on and she was like a pound heavier than when she first started. But she was completely different, like new person. And it just like destroyed her. And that was the last day I saw her. Like she totally ghosted me. And I was like, fuck. So I'm never like ever weighing someone in. But um, the point I was trying to make is like, I try to change the conversation to like performance goals so I try to tell my female clients like I want you to be able to do a chin up I want you to be able to deadlift your body weight because you have to look a certain way to be able to do that so now when you change your mindset to like okay I need to come to the gym so I can work on this and this so I can get to my chin up rather than like I need to weigh myself multiple times a day and then have this like psychological warfare with myself and now I'm not happy totally (laughs) I personally have gained nine pounds Nice, good for you. (laughs) And I go to the gym five to six days a week. So that says something. Oh, 100%. Like, if you look at physiological, like, muscle weighs more than fat. Like, but when you say that to a woman, she doesn't really understand that. All she hears is, like, it weighs more, which is a bad thing. But it's it's tough training women and trying to, like, get back. Because even women who get to that like physique that they want they'll still find something that um that is not good enough essentially but 
Um, another topic I like to bring up is like self-negative talk. Oh God. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious, like, how do you deal with it? How do you like help other women deal with it, or is there a way to deal with it? <laughs> so if you look at the mirrors in my house, like this one right outside here before I leave the door, it says "Hello, gorgeous." The mirrors in my store say, hey, you, yeah, you, you're perfect. Um, So I'm huge on self-talk. I do a lot of personal meditation, and that's kind of where I set my intention for the day. Um, And whatever that message is, I just all day remind myself of that. Awesome. Yeah, that one's an easy one. Yeah, it's... Like uh, easy for me. Yeah. Once you learn how to do it, it's easy. It's yeah. not easy to start, but... Yeah, I think, like, it sounds silly, but it does go a long way. But I think someone told me, like, when you get into those that negative space, you just have to ask yourself, like, why do I feel like I can talk to myself that way? Like, wh- where does that stem from? And then you start thinking about it, you're like, I don't even know, right? Like, totally. But And how to snap yourself out of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I just start with something simple. So, like, for me personally, one of my, when I'm kind of, when I put my gym clothes on and maybe I'm not feeling great that day, I stop myself and say, Annie, you can physically walk out your front door and walk to a gym and exercise. Yeah. You're winning. Yeah, 100%. It, it's the small wins like, over time. It's a huge win. Yeah, big time. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this can kind of go into like, because you said you come to the gym five to six times a week, and that's freaking crazy because most people can't even like make the commitment to one day a week. And that's like one of my rules when I start with a brand new client. I'm like, I want you to commit at least one day. Yeah for like the rest of your life because you'll see huge changes. So I'm kind of curious, how did you prioritize the gym in your life? Yeah, so at first, last February, that was exactly it. I was like, Annie, you are going two days a week. Like, you can do this. And there was a lot of self-talk. There were a lot of weeks that I went once or that I didn't go. Um, And then something changed in the summer and I can't really pinpoint what it was but I started noticing how I felt when I left the gym Mm -hmm. so it wasn't as much as how I felt while I was at the gym but I kind of felt invincible for an hour after I worked out Um, and at that time I was in the helm of starting my new business I was working 16 hour days easy seven days a week Um, I started this business on my own so it was on my lonesome and it was crazy and I just started going more because I kind of got addicted to that feeling of after the gym it was my hour of peace it was serenity it was my own space um any issue that came up with starting the new business if it came at me in that in that hour after the gym it was a non-issue um so it was really powerful and I think there began kind of an addiction to yeah. it. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Um, and then it just went from there. And then I would go four days a week and then five. And now some weeks I'm going six. And and I, I'm not showing up to the gym every day and working my ass off. Some days I show up and I just kind of do a little bit of everything. And I don't push myself. 
because I don't have it in me to push myself. And I think that's important to recognize too. So when you say, Annie, wow, you go six days a week, it's like, yeah, but there's (laughs) like within reason, right? I think the important thing is just to show up. And that's what I tell clients all the time. Because yeah, it's like... You just have to show up. Like, yeah, you could have had two hours of sleep last night because your kid was, like, up all night. Or a good one I always mention is, like, I had one one of my clients, borderline alcoholic, but, like, he, cool, like... Yeah. Well, not cool, but <laughs> sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, he had a good time with it. But anyway, like, one time he, like, showed up so hungover. And he's like, I don't even know why I'm here. And I'm like, the important thing is you showed up. Because you can always adjust your workout like it's just getting into the habit of showing up totally totally and if I honestly if I couldn't show up for myself I showed up for most of the time it's Mark or Tom yeah um, because they showed up yeah 100% and I think that's the other thing too is like if you find a gym where you like the people in there and you like the environment it makes it that much easier totally yeah absolutely um maybe let's touch on like how and when you started your business and why you wanted to start the business and what is the business yeah okay so february i keep going back to last february but it really was a pivotal moment in my short little life um i've always been a creative um i had an online business called pure prints have still there Um, and I print graphic mugs. So I would design and print graphic mugs right at that desk over there. And I would print them in my kitchen. This is the first mug I ever made, actually. Oh, cool. The irony of that. That. Game of Thrones. Yeah, I love it. Um, (laughs) So I had that online business. I had just finished my schooling in marketing. That took me, I think, seven years to do. Nice. Um, And I had a full-time career. Uh, but I couldn't keep up anymore. My online mug sales were taking over my life, which was amazing. Um, I was grateful for it, but I kind of had to make a decision. I also, at the same time, I was dealing with beginning that health journey that I keep kind of going back to. So there were a lot of things happening, and I uh, things weren't improving in that journey, so I had to make some changes. Um, I needed to de-stress, which is hilarious. (laughs) So I decided to start my own business. Nice. Yeah. So I um, left my full-time career job um, and signed a lease on a space. And I knew that I couldn't just make mugs. Like, that's ridiculous. That's not... Well, maybe it is a full business for some people, but that wouldn't be feasible for me. So... I thought um, to myself, what do I not like about working at home? Um, That sounds like a dream to some people, but I didn't like that I would get distracted. I would feel like, oh, I need to go do laundry. Oh, I should start dinner. Um, And I was lonely. It's so lonely working five days a week at home when you're creative and when people inspire you. So I was like, there's got to be other Annie's out there that are craving just human connection. We're always on the online world. As I said, my business was purely online, but I wanted to sit and talk to people. And 
my I know it sounds crazy, but my mugs tell stories. Like I'm part of birth announcements with my mugs. That's awesome. Like people tell their parents they're pregnant with my mugs. I'm they do weddings with my mugs. Like there's so many stories with my mugs. Yeah. So I really wanted to be able to meet my customers. It started getting weird. They were in my living room all the time or <laughs> picking them up from my front porch. So fast forward, I found the space. Um, I decided to split it in two. So the front is where I could retail my mugs. And then I brought in some fashion to kind of supplement <laughs> the space. And then the back is co-working. So there's now eight entrepreneurs that share the space with me and cool. essentially run their business back there. There you go. Yeah, that was um, really long. But no, that's fine. <laughs> like that, That's why like when I do podcast interviews, yeah. the best guests are the ones that are just like, you ask one question, they go off for 20 minutes, and then you ask the next one, you're like, oh, yeah. I guess we're right out of time. Yeah, like I could have added a lot more in there. I tried yeah. to fast forward that a bit. Um, maybe to kind of touch on like what did you do before? before like starting your business what was your job um i was people don't know what this means but i was a constituency assistant so i was like uh an assistant to the community and to a provincial level politician so in the political world okay fair enough how did that transition of you like realizing that okay now i need to quit this job and then make this giant leap like, what was some of the conversations you had in your head where you kind of led to the answer where you're like, okay, I need to, like, quit my job, sign this lease, and just just pull the trigger? Um, back to my health journey. Okay. Things, things were not changing for me. Yeah. Um, my health wasn't improving. Um, so I needed to just make myself happy, and I needed to do what I thought would equate to happiness. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Because I think a lot of people find themselves in those situations and they don't want to pull the trigger because they're just kind of used to like whatever. It's fucking terrifying. Yeah, yeah There's it is. No, it is. There is no like I was. I was thinking to myself earlier. How did I feel like this time last year? Fast forward a little bit, maybe like next month. Yeah. Last year, like. Just close your eyes and picture that the bank just called and said they're taking your house away, your husband's leaving you, (laughs) and your whole family just died. And live in that moment of, like, fear, that, like, choking in your throat, like, heart (laughs) to the floor. Like, I felt like that every single step of making this decision. It was not easy. Like, it, it was extreme. Like, I'm talking vomiting constantly. Like, it was awful, but absolutely worth it yeah and i do think you have to be a little bit naive to start your own business <laughs> awesome yeah um maybe on that note we can start getting into some of the questions we got because a lot of people started asking like questions about your business how you fit stuff in um maybe we can kind of go back and forth between our phones okay because the crazy thing is like what we were talking before we even started um Recording is like you basically have a fan group out there that you know. The moment I posted on Facebook and Instagram that I'm interviewing you, like people are sharing the post, people are like so pumped that you're going to be on. Um, so maybe we can start with Allie Power. Oh, yeah, yeah. shout out to Allie if you're listening. <laughs> um, I would love to know the process. Oh, we kind of talked about it, uh, deciding to quit her full time job. And pursue her own business. Um, 
we kind of chatted about it on this. Also, um, during this time, this was a crazy four months, and Allie kind of lived a little bit of this um, with me uh, through my journey. Um, but I also had hired, actually, I didn't hire her. I won, freakishly enough. Things happen for a reason. Yeah. I won an online contest um, for this Life, Mind, Body, Soul Coach program. Okay. Um, so Anna is her name, and she's in Langley. Uh, she also coached me through this, and she made me put all of these feelings and thoughts on paper. And she coached me through the fear and what fear is and how fear is real, but it's also not real. It's a, it's a feeling. It's mm-hmm. an animal instinct reaction. Yeah. Um, so she coached me through, I guess, kind of pushing that aside so I could make my decision. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Can you touch on more about fear? Because I think that's a good topic. <gasps> Jeez. Yeah. <clears throat> fear. Yeah. Um... How did she describe it to me? And it just made so much sense. I'm going to try, but sure. I might butcher this. <laughs> so that feeling of fear, when you feel it in your throat and you feel it in your chest, when you're about to do something, whether it's a decision, whatever it is, that that is an, an in- instinct we have from thousands of years ago. That's the same feeling that we have when there was a saber-toothed tiger chasing us. Mm-hmm. She's going to laugh. I hope she listens to this. <laughs> um, so I, I sit back, and when I'm making a decision, whether it's a decision in business or in life, I say, what is the worst thing that is going to happen right now? Yeah. And I'm probably, like, knock on wood not going to die like that saber-toothed tiger was chasing me so I'm gonna be okay so whatever that decision is as long as you can say well what's the worst thing that could happen am I okay with that it's gonna be okay yeah like I came up with so obviously one of my big fears was oh my god like I'm not gonna have an income that's okay you can sell your mugs to help supplement your rent at your store. Mm-hmm. You have a little bit of savings. What happens if that savings gone? Is it worth renting a room out in your house? Oh, great. You, you've got more income. There's always a way. Yeah. So I think it's just really pushing aside fear, thinking of worst case scenario, because that's always where my mind goes. How can I handle that? It's probably going to be okay. Sweet. Um, is it Anna Wynn by any chance? It is. Yeah, okay. She has a question on here too. Um, define and describe how the health of your mind slash body and the health of your business are connected. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's pretty much everything. Um, I am my business. I am a single business owner. Um, so if I'm not okay, my business isn't okay. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. Like, I, I'm literally the bookkeeper and the cashier and mm-hmm. the janitor and everything. So if I can't show up 100% that day... No. That, that <laughs> like, makes sense. Because, like, in my industry, it's the same things. A lot of coaches will train long hours from the early morning all into the night. And then they start getting into that burnout. And then yeah. now they can't give the 100% to the client. And then the service goes down. 
but it's like this never-ending cycle of like you want to keep helping people but now you can't even help yourself and now you can't help your client and then totally. you're just I'm really feeling like my business is very relatable to trainers. Like, being yeah. an entrepreneur, it's it's very similar. Yeah, 100%. Like, in my industry, to actually do well, like, there's not a lot, like, or is the exception, but there's no, like, you get hired by a gym and, like, you don't have to worry about anything. Like, totally. you still have to get new clients. You got to make their programs. You got to find new ways to bring more income in because most places you work at a gym you gotta pay rent you also gotta pay your insurance you also gotta pay this you gotta pay that and then you gotta work enough hours to supplement that but then you end up working too many hours and now you gotta figure out ways to get yourself off the floor work on the business like it's a never-ending cycle yeah yeah interesting yeah uh, so yeah, they're all they're all connected, and I, if I don't take care of one, then the other one's suffering. Yeah, mind, body, soul. I think that was her. Um, another good question from Sandy: <laughs> oh. How does your hair look so beautiful every day? Seriously, so put together all the time. She rocks. <laughs> well, thank you, Sandy. Uh, the hair thing is kind of a joke, but it is something that does fill up my Instagram inbox <laughs> on the regular. Um, I'm just lucky. I, I didn't I hadn't gotten my hair done in nine months until last week, so okay. Um we also got someone Instagram too, which I just have to pull up. And then maybe you can pull up yours as well. Actually this is a good one too. Uh would love to know how she stays motivated. Okay. Uh Motivation is a funny word for me for some reason. I don't know if I just associate it with like New Year's resolutions and it makes me cringe, but just because that's a buzzword we hear a lot. Um, But I guess, well, first of all, the gym is a non-negotiable. So just how you wake up and go through Starbucks in the morning and Mm -hmm. you don't even think about it, that's just part of your day. Yeah. That's what the gym is to me. It's not like, oh, like, should I go? Should I get off the couch and go today? Oh, I don't know if I have time. No, like, I've missed, like, really important meetings to be at the gym. My friends know it's non-negotiable. I will not come to family dinner if it overlaps with the gym because that's my time and I'm super protective about protective about it. Um... So it doesn't take motivation for me to get there. So I guess that's amazing because I'm able to show up and that seems to be, uh, I guess, the challenge for a lot of people. But once you get to the point where it just is part of your day, it's, it's, I'm going to say it's easy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not, but, but it is. Sure. Um, But my motivation is that feeling that I'm talking about, the hour where I don't have my cell phone during the class and the hour that I'm invincible after the class. Yeah. Like, if I'm having a bad day, my husband will say, can you please go to the gym? (laughs) And it will change our whole weekend. Yeah. That's really good. I I think that's a good point is, like, making it a non-negotiable. Yeah. Because if you don't then you can use so many different excuses to yeah. be like, yeah, I don't need to go today, I'll go tomorrow. And my friends suffer for it, absolutely. Like, yeah. I could squeeze that coffee date in with a girlfriend once a week. Sure. I probably should, should, should sometimes, but I'm also a little bit selfish with my time right now, mm-hmm. and I think everyone should be. 
Yeah, I like I think moms in general need to learn that because like I've been training moms a long time, yeah. and always their kids will come first. Yeah. But then they run down. They're not happy. They get tired more easily, and it's like if you just were selfish, like with air quotes. Yeah. One hour a day, like. One hour a day a week, <laughs> like start with yeah. that one. Yeah, you know? honestly, yeah. it makes a big difference, but. Um, but yeah, I guess, and that, and I, I'm not a mom, so I can't speak yeah. to that schedule. Um, but people will say to me like, "Aren't you too tired?" or "Where do you find the time?" Yeah. And those questions, like, they're cringeworthy to me. Like, you just do it. Yeah. Like, you find the time to scroll on your phone for an hour. You find yeah. the time to watch Netflix. I often miss everything that's on TV. I have no idea what's going on. I don't watch the whatever. I'm not going to name shows because I don't <laughs> think I should. But um, I, don't, I don't have time. Like, you're absolutely right. But I do yeah. have time to go to the gym. Yeah. Like, one of the exercises I do a lot with clients is, like, audit their entire day. Yeah. And then when you start seeing, like, oh, you watched three hours worth of House of Cards. Yeah. You could probably fit the gym in there or, or, or make a meal or, like, do anything, really. Anything. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that's, that's a tough thing. Like, now everything's so accessible to us and it's, like... You go from watching Netflix on your TV and then you go into bed and now you're on your phone watching it. Like, there's a lot of other stuff you could be doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think if that's my, like, one message is, like, if Annie has the time, you have the time. Yeah. Because I'm an entrepreneur, but I also volunteer a lot. And I also am on boards. And I, <laughs> like, it's a, it's a full day. Yeah, 100%. You have the time. I feel very, like, fortunate that we're doing this. You do, yeah. Well, it was pretty intense. I had one one opportunity window, or else we yeah. were coming here after 9 o'clock at night. So. Yeah, seriously. Um, another question was, would love to know how she manages to balance everything in her life and what her motivation is. Girl is an absolute beauty and a freaking beast all in one. Aww. Yeah. I don't. Okay. And I think it's really important that we're upfront and honest about that. I think on my personal Instagram, I try and be honest about that. I don't balance everything. So if my hair looks good that day, I probably did meditate. Okay. If I, yeah, I, I don't balance everything. There's always something missing. And any of my coworkers will call this out, um, call me out for this. If I seem to have everything together that, that day, I definitely didn't have lunch. Yeah. So I'm not balancing everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. Like, especially now for me, like, when I thought I was busy last year and I look at this year, I'm like, how the hell am I even getting my shit together? Yeah. So there's a lot of push and pull. Like, if you went to my house right now, there's so many dishes just, just sitting cool. there. And yeah. I'm like... Yeah, you know what? That's it is what it is. But there's other important things that yeah. you you should be doing with your time. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, um, meditation. That's another thing I'll kind of want to touch on quickly. Is how did you get into that, and what kind of benefit do you get from it? Anna. Okay. That was a practice that I started with Anna. I was the person that said my mind is too busy. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't have time for that. We don't have time for anything. It seems. Um, I, there's no way I could calm myself for 10 minutes. 
Uh, all I would think about is my day or what I have to do or what I didn't do. Um, so I came up with all of those excuses and that's all they are is excuses. Yeah. Um, so I started with like two minutes, not even, um, not like right when I would wake up, like after I kind of had some tea and maybe checked emails, then sure. I would start and I would just lay there for two minutes. And if I thought about emails, I thought about emails. Yeah. It was more about car similar to the gym, carving out the time for it mm -hmm. and making it a non-negotiable. Sure. And so once I carved out the time for it and the time slot kept grow growing, I, I better figure this out or else I'm just wasting a lot of yeah. my day. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Um, so let's hit up your questions you got from Instagram. They're all, um, sorry, that's not, uh, they're all food related. They're all, what's sure. your meal plan? What do you have for lunch? Like yeah. questions like that. And um, that's where I need help. Okay. I'm fair. really, I probably see, would see a lot uh, better results. Not that I really need to do that. That's not yeah. why I go to the gym. Um, but yeah, no, I 100% fail. Okay, good. I'm eating. That's awesome. So there's my balance. I'm not balanced. I don't yeah. do it all. Something's always got to give, and often it's my nutrition. <laughs> That's fair. Like you probably don't want to hear that. No, no, not at all. Because like the reality. A lot of people have this idea in their head that to be healthy, you have to be like eating out of containers of chicken, rice, and broccoli every day, yeah. which is not sustainable whatsoever unless you're wanting to step on stage Thank for you something. For saying that. Yeah, seriously. Like, I can't make. I don't. I can't do the six chicken breasts on Sunday. No, no. Because I actually don't like the way chicken breast tastes a day old. So yeah. I'm not gonna eat it. <laughs> But, like, that, that's the tough thing about industry because it's, like, that's what you see online and that's what you just, like, expect. Same with, like, exercise, too. Yeah. It's, like, if I'm not running on the treadmill and crying and throwing up, there's no point in me going. I'm, like, that's oh, not geez. that's not exercise whatsoever, right? Yeah. So people just either go, like, all or nothing all the time. But, yeah. you know, if you find a balance of, like, you're happy with what you're eating and you're going to the gym and your life is better than you've you've won like that's success right there it just depends on what you want like if yeah. you want to look like someone in the magazine then yeah you got to put a lot of work like that's literally a full-time job so if you like ask Keisha yeah like when she oh, was competing gosh. like prepping your body for a bodybuilding show is a full-time job yeah so you can't have everything for you yeah. so even uh, do you know Gary Vaynerchuk Duh. Yeah, love him. Come on. So Jordan, his trainer. Yeah. I actually know. I've had him on my show twice. Whoa. Yeah. I so. Miss those episodes. Yeah. Um, what Jordan does, like I think his official title is the CEO of uh, Gary's Body, cool. and basically follows him around everywhere he goes, and he's in charge of when he goes to sleep, what he eats at every single restaurant meeting, and trains him. That's his only job to make sure that he's wow. taken care of, right? So even at that point, like, again, Gary's not a bodybuilder, right? So, like, imagine having that much attention on you and still not looking like you would in a magazine. Yeah. Says a lot, right? Because, yeah. like, again, Gary still is probably drinking wine with customers and clients. Totally. He's probably eating whatever he wants without Jordan knowing because everyone's a human being. But his main thing is him being an entrepreneur, not being a magazine cover model, right? Yeah. But I don't think no one really understands the middle ground of what health and fitness is, where it's just like you want to feel and move better and have more energy. Yeah. Honestly. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else we can bring up because we're getting close to the end here, but maybe talk about your business a little bit more and like you can plug it away because I think that'd be awesome. Mm. So other than selling mugs, like what do you sell at your store? Who are you trying to attract and market to? And what are some customers that you didn't think you'd attract that are coming in buying your stuff? Yeah. What a question. Right? And that last question was a good one because that absolutely is happening. Um, what else do I sell? I sell a lot uh, of women's fashion. That wasn't on purpose. Um, I had just brought in a couple pieces. I did some shopping um, in LA because that's where you can find some pretty trendy stuff. Yeah. Um, so I just brought in a couple pieces and they sold out right away. So I bring out a couple more, sell out right away. Um, so it's it's really moving to being a mug and fashion boutique. Yeah. Um, but then I also sell a mixture, a lot of um, BC entrepreneurs products. So some local like soaps and sure. face, sorry. Oh no, that's not a phone call. Um, a lot of like bath and body products that are locally made, some clothing that is locally designed. Um, and a lot of like little gift kind of things. Nice. Mm -hmm. awesome. Like another thing I'm like impressed with is like the fact that your store is doing so well and now we live in an age where you just go on your phone on Amazon and just buy whatever you want. Totally. So I'm kind of curious of like how do you kind of fight that off because people are still coming to your store. I don't know if it's like the nostalgia of going to a store and like feeling stuff and then like yes I want to buy it or if you think it's something so, else. So <clears throat> my customers will agree to this. I'm really picky with the fabrics that I bring in. Okay. Um, the touch and feel of clothing is yeah. really important to me and that's something that I definitely have on Amazon. Um, I'll say this humbly, my coworkers are always raving and cheering me on about this, but they're actually not really buying the products, they're buying me. Um, they're supporting me, not buying me. Okay. Uh, they could buy that jumpsuit from Amazon, mm -hmm. or they could know that they're actually buying Annie's groceries that week. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's... That's where it, where yeah. it lies. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe for the last question to wrap this thing up, um, what do you have down the pipeline for the heart? Oh my and gosh. any other like big projects you want to see? Any big goals even for yourself that you want to achieve yeah. in this next year? Yeah. So I'm looking for a mentor. Anyone out there? <laughs> Help. Help me. <laughs> no, it's been a conversation that I've been having for the last couple weeks now. Like, holy shit, I've got to re-sign my lease soon. Like, mm -hmm. time just flies. Um, so I really do need a mentor, a business mentor. Um, I'll find one uh, to help me with those big goals. Yeah. Because the mistake all entrepreneurs make and that I'm making is I'm literally living in the now. At least I'm recognizing that I need to make some big goals and future plans. Um, but as for now, it's like, my goal is to get like a weekend back okay fair enough i yeah. think that's fair yeah um so very last question if you had to give some parting words to the audience <sighs> it could be like a word or like just yeah. anything yeah 
A word. A word, phrase, uh, advice, life advice. So like advice. one thing okay. is just uh, be a little bit selfish and make things that are important to your health because health at the end of the day, and that's so cliche, but it is literally the only thing we have. Um, without health, we have nothing. So be non-negotiable about the things that bring you good health. Perfect. So thank you so much for your time. You crushed this thing. I hope so. Okay, so last up on my list is episode 225 with Kelly Hart Davis, who is a online coach in California that inspires so many women to be a better version of themselves. And on top of that, she runs her own business and is a mother of two. And I think it's such an important topic to have role models like Kelly Hart Davis for other women out there that are trying to find the balance between their health, their home life, their business, their work, whatever it is. So no wonder 225 was a top five in my 2019 list. So without further ado, here is Kelly Hart Davis. All right. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me for the first time is the lovely Kelly Hart Davis. Say hello. Hello, Rafael. Thank you for having me, and thank you for sharing me with your audience. No problem. Super excited. So, I always like to start the show with super easy lobbing questions. So, the first one is, what do you got planned for the weekend? Oh my goodness. Am I supposed to make plans? <laughs> I guess. I that is <laughs> so far ahead. Um, honestly, it depends on the weather. So um, I'm in Northern California outside of Sacramento. Our weather has been um, super rainy, but then we have sunny days. So I'm not, we need the rain, um, but it's always weather dependent because we have such gorgeous hiking around this area. So if it's nice, I'm definitely getting outside. Nice. Does the forest fires come up to where you live? We have been blessed and fortunate mm. enough to not have fires in our area. Um, however, we do get affected by the smoke and the yeah. soot. Um, yeah, so it's it's like a very disheartening, devastating reminder, which I know you deal with a lot in your area as well. Yeah, like the um, last two years in Vancouver, it's like it almost looks like the apocalypse outside where it's like oh, super it's so sunny. Sad. Yeah, it's like scary and it doesn't, yeah, it does not look that great. Yeah, it's just, um, I don't know, hopefully forestry management or whomever yeah. is, you know, in, in charge of these things, we can work together to get, get it worked out. But um, more and more here in California, both in Northern and Southern California, it's just massacring um, populated areas. We yeah. used to not see that. It used to be actual forest fires and now it's you know we're we're seeing entire communities wiped out so yeah, it's um, tough like i remember even last year we my wife and i did a road trip to banff in alberta to go to lake louise and it was like with all the smog it's like you get to lake louise and you're like oh yeah there's water but you can't really see the glacier mountain behind it and i'm like uh, man this kind of sucks and like so many people go to go see it but yeah hopefully this year it'll be a little bit different but we'll see what happens yeah, hopefully we'll see some good changes. Um, so second easy question, what is the current book you're reading or listening to? Oh my goodness, um, so many. I, <laughs> I'm i like one of those people where I will pick up five different books at one time and then, um, yeah, 
I'm, I'm really hard pressed to read something cover to cover without like intervening another book. Um, so like my, my pleasure reading right now is uh, man's search for meaning by Victor Frankel. Um, and then I'm also reading Seth Godin's new book. Nice. Um, I, I think it's called this is marketing. And then I probably have like 12 other things that I've got open right now that I can't think of, but those are my main go-tos, my, my business one that I've got going on and my pleasure one that I've got going on. Yeah, when I meet people where they could like read 10 books at once, I just get this like instant anxiety where, because I'm like the person that has to start with one book and then finish it and then move on to the next one. I'm like, yeah, I can't live that way. <laughs> I know. So I, I usually have like a paperback or hardcover then a Kindle book that I've got going, and then um, audiobooks. I'm an audiobook junkie. So whenever I've got downtime, if I'm walking the dogs, cleaning, um, you know, driving in the car, I will have an audiobook or a podcast going on. So yeah, I'm kind of an information junkie, but I'm really good at trivia. So <laughs> it pays off, you know? <laughs> awesome. Um, so the last easy question is, what is the current TV series you're watching, or do you watch TV at all? Um, right now, I don't have a series going. I So my guilty pleasure, like, right before bed, I will turn on um, either... Like, usually Comedy Central on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Nice. And then um, I like... I like watching stand-up, or I'll watch uh, The Daily Show, like clips from The Daily Show. Uh, there's this other series on there called This Is Not Happening, and it's all these comedians. Sometimes they have musicians that'll go up and just tell, like, these wild stories about something that happened in their lives. Mm -hmm. They're usually, like, six to 15-minute clips. I'll watch a couple of those. Um, though I do watch John Oliver on HBO. Nice. And his season just started back up. So I guess I guess that's my, my series right now. Okay. Um, right. Yeah, but I'm not invested in, like, um, one of those long-term committed relationships <laughs> with, like, Game of Thrones or yeah. anything. <laughs> but yeah, everyone's, like, super hyped for the last season of Game of Thrones, and I'm still surprised that it's been out for so long. Like, to me, it's like, oh, it's been around for, like, two years, but it's been around for almost a decade I know it's crazy. I have um, at certain points in time tried to watch it. I just mm -hmm. don't have the attention span. It's not that I, I, I think it's fantastically done. Um, I'm just the type of person where I have to be doing 27 things while the TV's on, and that's a show that you really have to immerse yourself yeah. in and and get to know the characters and the the script and the dynamics of the different families and. That's a that's a lot of attention for me. <laughs> it, it, it's a tough show because like I remember even watching like the first and second season with my wife, and she read all the books, and I kept like saying, "Who's this guy again? What, what happened here? Why is this happening?" Like you have to really pay attention. You can't just have yeah. it in the background. But uh, yeah. Anyway, before we keep going off the grid, let's uh, do a little intro <laughs> of who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry. Yeah, so that's kind of a funny story um, that most people don't know about me, but I am Kelly Hart Davis. I'm currently the owner of FitThriveWorkouts.com. I'm also the co-author of the women's fitness book, Strong Curves, and I am a freelance um, content and copywriter. So my story in a nutshell, I was in women's figure bodybuilding 
Um, I got into it in 2009, and I was a middle school teacher. At the time my family moved, um, I wasn't tenured as a teacher. There were no jobs in Arizona. So I got into freelance writing, and I started a blog. Um, Back then, it was Mother Fitness. And, you know, back then, like, everyone had blog roles, and we would, like, all comment on each other's blogs. And, like, the fitness community was just really tight-knit. And um, I I sort of moved away from the bodybuilder community and started finding, like, strength and conditioning coaches, Um, you know, like Tony Gentlecore, Eric Cressy, Mia Shanks, uh, Brett Contreras. You know, just the handful of us that were really um, sort of in this circle, and I I immersed myself in that circle. And then I started working with Brett um, to train me as his clients, and we got along really great. And I, you know, I'm like, your methods are so different than standard bodybuilding. I'm like, you should really sort of immerse, like, start putting your stuff out there and, and teaching these figure. And at the time, bikini was just new. Figure and bikini competitors, like, there's a different way. You don't have to, like, burn yourself out and do, you know, all these, like, crazy workouts to see results. Um, And, you know, he and I maintained a a working relationship as he worked on his PhD. We ended up deciding to conspire together to write a book um, that we're just going to publish on his blog, just like a, a quick downloadable PDF. And 10 days before that launch happened, I got an email from a publisher. They're saying, hey, we know who you guys are. We love your work. We want your book. Don't put it out. And I forward it to Brett. I'm like, I just got this thing, and I don't know how legit it is, but I think we should entertain it. And he's like, all right, schedule a conference call. Like, we were not taking it seriously at all because it came from a Gmail address, which I later learned a lot of publishers don't send emails from, you know, their their publishing company because they don't want it to end up in spam, and, you know, they just want it to be, like, more of, um, like, a low-key interaction. So we got on the phone with the owner of Victory Belt Publishing and the acquisitions editor, um, so Erich Krauss and Glenn Cordoza. And like, I feel like two weeks later, we were contracted in this book deal, and we scrapped the whole book, and we started over, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is happening. This is crazy. You know, I was just like this little like low-key blogger, um, like figure competitor. And he, he was making a name for himself. He was sort of up and coming. He was still trying, um, you know, like that was the beginning of his brand. Obviously now, um, he's a very recognized name, but you know, he was up and coming and I was a nobody and we were contracting with this book. Um, yeah. And then as we were writing it, it was literally like him sending me like these intense, like research articles. Cause he was working on his PhD and I was, just like, oh, I have to figure out how to translate all this stuff. And it, it worked. And the book uh, launched. And he's, you know, like, he's like, you're really good at this stuff. You should become a trainer. And as the book was launching, um, we put together our first online business together. And all of a sudden, like, I exploded. Oh. And I was everywhere. And I was on radios and po- podcasts. And, you know, like, all these brands were coming after me to to with them. And I was like, who am I and what is happening? Um, so my story was like the opposite of most people where they're like, yeah, I was in the industry for 15 years. And then, you know, I made a name for myself and I was like, I was a nobody. And then all of a sudden everybody wanted to know who I was. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was cool, but it was also like, I had really bad imposter syndrome because here I am being put at the level of, you know, 
Tony Genocor and Dean Somerset and Nia Shanks and Brett Contreras and like all these people that um, really had built a brand for themselves in the fitness industry. And I was like, I don't belong here. Who am I? I don't know anything. I don't have any accolades, you know? So um, that was like an internal struggle that I didn't really voice, but I felt like I didn't really come out as myself for gosh, like probably not till like 2016. So it was a good, I'd say 2011 to 2016. I was kind of like this persona of who I was and, you know, people put me on a pedestal and nobody really knew anything about me. I was like this perfect, like put together at home, you know, like mom with this amazing body and I could do no wrong. And, um, I, I just felt like I needed to be more real with women and I needed to have more, um, a stronger identity so that people could relate to me. And so I've, I've worked really hard. That's when I switched over to my Fit Thrive brands because I wanted women to see like, look, I got it. I'm just like you. Um, I know what you're going through. And I, I came down to people's um, levels rather than allowing them to elevate me like they had always done. And they're like, oh, wow, you're not perfect. You're just like me. And I became a lot more likable. So um, that's been sort of the evolution of my business over the past three years is just really um, becoming like your neighbor, like the woman next door who who's, you know, going through life just right along with you. Well, that was a really good intro, and I'm going to try to, like, unravel that entire story. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's I good. I was going really long. <laughs> no, like, those are, these are the best guests where, like, I ask one question, and then 17 minutes later, they're done, right? Um, okay, so, like, maybe the first thing, I'm kind of curious of, like, how and what, like, what kind of made you interested in bodybuilding and figure to begin with? Yeah. So I was like your typical, um, I was, you know, an avid athlete growing up, but I was just super skinny. So I always had a hard time with anything strength. Like uh, speed was my game. I was really, really fast. Um, I was a good pitcher. I was, you know, I was like awesome at softball, but I was never strong. And then I realized like going into high school, it was a totally different ball game because here I was like this skinny little, like 115 pound girl who was an all-star in little league. And all of a sudden, like I'm up against like heavy hitters. Um, so I realized like my size was actually, um, disadvantageous and I didn't know how to put on muscle. And I was always just, you know, like sort of weak and, um, and so I didn't pursue sports. And then after college, I just, you know, went the, the mainstream route. And then, um, you know, I had a family and I was starting a career and I just sort of let myself go. And I, I got stuck in that cycle that so many moms get stuck into where all of a sudden, like everything is put ahead of your own needs. Um, and I just kind of had this wake up call one day where I didn't even recognize myself and, um, I was like, you know, I, I felt like I was in like a foreign body and I was just unhappy and, and, um, just really uncomfortable in my own skin. I had, had you know, low self-worth, low self-esteem. Um, I had a great life. I, you know, I had a good career. I had a good home, but I just, I wasn't investing in myself. And so I thought the only way to do it was to go all in, um, so I slowly started going back to the gym. I would take like body 
pump and yoga classes and like dip out after 20 minutes. Cause it, you know, like they were really hard. Um, but I just kept going and I kept going and I kept going and eventually I made my way back into the gym. And I always had this goal to be a bodybuilder, but I thought they were like freaks of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, like you were born that way. And then, you know, I, I started realizing like, no, that these, you know, these are just average everyday people. Some bodybuilders are freaks of nature, but most of them are just like everyday people that had a goal. Um, so I'm like, that can be me too. And I just decided like I was almost 30 and I wanted to be in the best shape of my life by the time I was 30. And, you know, that's kind of how I got into bodybuilding. It, it was like, I felt like it was, um, a low barrier to entry for somebody who had always been super competitive, but didn't really have a competitive outlet. And that's kind of what I looked at it. It was a way to challenge myself, um, it, but not diving head first back into sports or, you know, investing a lot of time and energy. Um, cause some, some sports are just really time consuming. And that's why a lot of people get back into sports when they're older, whether it's triathlons or, um, different things when you have more free time. And I didn't have a lot of free time cause I was a full-time teacher and a full-time mom. Um, so I just felt like it was something that was manageable that allowed me to, um, get back into shape and also get back into some type of competition. Okay. How, how many kids do you have? I have two oh. and, um, they're 13 and 16. Okay. So honestly, like now they're a breeze. They're super yeah. cool. They're fun. <laughs> Um, they're self-sustaining as long as like they have food and water. They're totally cool. Um, yeah, my kids are awesome. Okay. Uh, I'm asking cause like, cause I literally train like 90% of my clientele in person are all moms. And okay. I always like getting kind of the opinion of another coach that is a mom of like, how do you prioritize, like, especially in the beginning of your kind of career, like the gym as, you know time for yourself and then being able to juggle two kids and a home life like what were your kind of key strategies to see success in that sense yeah so um back then i probably did everything wrong i've learned a thing or two (laughs) but um you know back then it was like you always have that guilt especially if you're working um full-time outside of the home and your kids are at school all day or they're um, with a nanny or or like a daycare facility like there's always that guilt of you know i'm leaving my kids all day long i'm not spending enough time with them how you know how can i justify um, leaving them again to work out or you know keeping them occupied at home so i can do my workout or whatever um but I, I've learned over time that it's very important for your children to see that you're investing in yourself um, and for them to see that you're not just mom. You know, it's one of the biggest honors to me is when my kids talk about me um, and they talk about like who I am and what I do and what I've accomplished and my personality and my hobbies and not just like, Oh yeah, my mom drives me around and she like makes really good spaghetti, you know? So I think it's, it's just a vital, especially, um, you know, for them to see that moms are like these dynamic, um, you know, individuals and they're not just, just moms. Um, you know, I, I don't, 
want my daughter to ever devalue herself as a woman simply because, you know, all I ever saw was my mom like doing stuff for me. And I also want my son to have like a really strong level of respect for, for women as well. So, um, that was big for me is realizing that it's important for my kids to see me as an individual and taking care of my own needs and prioritizing my health versus putting my health on the back burner, um, you know, just to be a mom, if that makes sense. Um, so as far as like prioritizing yourself, um, make a commitment to yourself like anything else, you know, you wouldn't schedule a doctor's appointment and not show up. Uh, you wouldn't like come in late to a meeting or, or not show up to a meeting or miss appointments in any other area of your life. You know, those things have value to you and, and they're important and you don't want to let other people down. Um, so you should treat yourself in that same respect. Take a look at your calendar, see where you have some downtime and schedule yourself in just like you would your dentist or a meeting with your boss or, you know, a luncheon with your coworkers. It's just as important. No, I think that's awesome. And like the fact that you're so driven and your boys see that and like, kind of like how you said, like if, you know, you want to be just more than your mom, especially now in this day and age, like women have so much more opportunity compared to say 40 years ago. So we, I was actually having a conversation with one of our friends where she just wants to be a housewife, but she's still kind of like empty with what she wants to do with her life. And uh-huh. we were just telling her, I'm like, you have so much opportunity just not just being a housewife. Like you can do so much more. And I think like, especially if you do have kids and you kind of show that example of, you know, damn, my mom's a badass. She runs her own business and works out every single day and somehow still makes food for us. Like that's badass. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, every single role that a woman, a woman can fill, it has value, um, you know, and it's, it's not that, you know, being a housewife, being a stay at home mom has tremendous amount of value. Um, but it's also a matter of, you know, as humans, like we, we're driven by having a sense of purpose. So going into, I have so many friends that are just phenomenal stay-at-home moms and housewives. Like you can tell they were born to do it. Um, they absolutely love it. And they're, they're just very, like their cup is filled every single day from doing it. And that's their sense of purpose. Um, you know, but it, it's a matter of creating space and life, a life for yourself outside of that. And that's, that's really the key balance, whether it's a career, um, whether it's, you know, athletic endeavors, whether it's volunteering, um, just find something within you that totally fills you up. And it's not just you being in service of others all of the time, but you know, that, that one, um, element in your life that is really about fulfilling your sense of purpose. A hundred percent. And the other thing I wanted to bring up too about the whole bodybuilding thing, when you got into it, like, did you ever fall victim to like criticizing every little bit about your body before getting up on stage? Because I remember when I first started in this industry, training a handful of women competing, they would complain about this thing not being as lean or this thing is too flabby when they're like sitting or standing there with like 13% body fat on them. And I'm like, you look amazing. Why are you still like critiquing every little bit about your body. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's so easy to fall into whether you're in bodybuilding or not. Um, 
And I was certainly immersed in that sort of mindset. And for me, it was, you know, like I was really, really small for a bodybuilder. Um, and I remember, you know, oxygen magazine was like my Bible back then. Um, this was really before social media got big. Um, you know, so now it's like Instagram is where people sort of, uh, find their, their inspiration, their motivation. And, you know, like the, those moments where you doubt yourself. Um, so I had really bad comparisonitis and I would go through and like, Oh, I want her shoulders and her abs and her legs and her glutes and her arms. And I would like sort of create this Frankenstein vision of what I wanted my body to look like. And it didn't, it took me years and years to realize like, um, you know, like your body, your frame, the way you carry, uh, muscle mass and fat deposits and your bone structure, everything has to do with like how your physique is going to look. So there's no amount of manipulation or prayer or dieting or muscle building that will make you look like something you're not meant to look like. Um, so I think that's one of the hardest things for, uh, you know, anyone dealing with that mental side of physique transformation is realizing you're on your own journey and your body is going to respond the way that it was meant to biologically respond. And it's not going to morph into somebody else. You can turn into, um, a stronger, faster, leaner, um, you know, more dynamic, more efficient version of you but you're not going to suddenly transform into the lady on the cover of the magazine. Cause that's a completely different body. Um, so yeah, that was always a struggle is, you know, the comparison itis, the, um, and I mean, it comes with the territory because bodybuilding is 100% judging you on aesthetics. Um, so, you know, you're always, always looking at yourself through a skewed lens because you're always going to be comparing yourself to others. And, um, you know, that's a really hard thing. No matter the, the best bodybuilders in the world still go through that, even though, you know, they're, they've reached like the pinnacle of their, their careers. So do you think that like just body image issues in general, do you think someone can actually get over that or is it something that you kind of have to just like quiet down in your brain? Yeah, I, you can definitely um, tame it and tamper it. Uh, and I think anyone is always going to have those moments of doubts no matter what, which is totally fine. And it's just a matter of learning your triggers and learning how to do little check-ins and looking at the bigger picture. And one of my favorite things to tell the women that I work with is, you know what, this is so much bigger than you. And when you start getting in your own head and you start focusing on all the little minutiae and start poking and prodding and picking your body apart, um, you're making this journey really, really small and selfish. Um, but it's really bigger than you. It's, it's about longevity. It's about deciding what you want your life to look like in 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Um, you know, like my biggest goal with my clients, even though I have clients that come to me and they're like, look, I've got this cruise coming up or, you know, I'm, I'm turning 50 and I want to look a certain way. I'm like, cool. Yeah. Let's work on that. 
but I'm also going to like tear your world apart and we're going to work on habits. We're going to work on posture. We're going to work on all the little, little things in your life that will improve your longevity. So we're going to get you to that goal, but I want you to stop thinking about finish lines. Um, you know, because finish lines really don't exist. It's like once you reach that goal, whether it's looking a certain way or, you know, getting off diabetes medication, whatever it is, like, what are you going to do? Stop? No. So, so let's erase those finish lines, um, you know, and, and focus on what you want your life to look like and let's future pace. Like, where do you want to be when you're 80? Um, but that I don't necessarily think that anything ever goes away, but I think we can, you know, like tame the noise and refocus our goals, um, over time rather than just like constantly tearing ourselves apart because we feel like we're not good enough. So what's kind of your like system or like strategy when you do receive a new client and you could tell that, you know, they have, they have a lot of body image issues, negative self-talk. Like, what's kind of your go-to that you know this is going to help this individual? Um, I think it's on a case-by-case basis. And yeah. I like having those conversations to find out where um, where these these feelings of, of self-doubt, self-deprecation, low self-worth, like, let's dig into that and, and kind of figure out... Um, you know, why we're feeling this way, where are these things coming from? Because a lot of times people don't think about those things, and I am by no means a psychologist at all. Um, But just shifting someone's mindset, I feel like that changes the person's physique more than anything. Um, Because a lot of people don't understand, like, you know, our, our DNA is constantly restructuring itself And so much of this happens because of the thoughts that we have in our head and the belief system that we've created. So when you have a negative thought, whether it's about your body, your life, um, an interaction that you had, though humans are the only creature on the planet that can create stress simply by having a thought. So if you have a stressful thought, whether it's about your cellulite, whether it's about, um, you know, stubborn belly fat, if you're constantly thinking about that, you you create a belief in your um, you create a belief system around that thing, and then you're having those negative thoughts, and it actually causes you to express chemicals into your body that create stress. So my biggest goal is to reduce stress around this thought, so we stop creating those stress induced chemicals that can leave you stuck in this pattern. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Like once, um, you know, we start turning those triggers off, like how quickly people's bodies change and they're like, Whoa, like this is, you know, this accountability, this workout, whatever. It's amazing. I'm like, uh, no, we're just, um, changing your belief system about yourself. And that's why your body is changing. So, um, different clients respond differently, but it's, it's pretty impressive. My, my favorite thing about coaching people is when I start hearing things like, hey, you know what? I just led this board meeting and I stood up tall and I had good posture and I made eye contact and people respected me. Like there was just a different level of conversation going on. Or, you know, I, I just organized this entire event and, um, you know, it was like the most enjoyable 
stress-free experience I've ever had and my anxiety was gone. And they just start noticing like all these these switches in their belief systems about themselves and they start showing up in the world differently. And those are, those are my favorite transformations. Body aside, like, you know, I love when people's bodies transform, but when they start showing up in the world differently, that, that to me is like the ultimate goal as a coach. Well, that's huge. And I, I think honestly, just talking to another individual about it is such a huge thing because most of the time a lot of people are just left with their own thoughts and devices and then they start believing it and then they just think it's true but then when you start talking to a coach or a friend who went through that same adversity and you Mm -hmm. just kind of like your eyes open a little bit you're like oh I don't have to think this way. Like that changes a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, just having people go inside and and become really introspective. And, you know, one of my favorite responses when I ask somebody a question is they're like, wow, I've never thought about that before. You know, you're just kind of just having that, that shift where you're causing them to think differently actually changes your gene expression and, you know, like your whole physiology changes. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. Like I study epigenetics and neuroplasticity. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's fascinating. It's all like very new science, but um, it's it has helped me tremendously overcome a lot of um, shame and 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 different aspects of my life that I was dealing with. So if I can bring that into my coaching, and you know, just help people um, take a holistic approach to fitness because I believe mental fitness is as important as physical fitness. And if we're not converging the two, um, you know, you're leaving out like 50% of the transformation if you don't tap into the emotional side of what you're doing. Oh, 100%. And the other question I wanted to bring up too is like, how much do you think our environment influences how we feel on the mental side and also when it comes to like body image issues, negative self-talk and honestly everything that we do? Oh, yeah. I think um, so much of it has to do with um, our feelings about ourselves. And, and I mean, there's, there's just different, you know, certain things in our environment that we can't control but we can control how we interact and respond to things. And that's, those are such important conversations to have, you know, especially like, like if um, I've had so many friends and clients who have gone through like big transformations, like we're talking like hundred pound weight loss and you literally have to change your identity as a human being when you do that, Um, which most people don't realize like that's a shift that they've gone through. Like you have to become someone else in order to lose a hundred pounds. And along that journey, you're going to get a lot of naysayers because, um, people's own insecurities pop up. So I've known so many people that, you know, they've lost friendships. They've, they were like judged really poorly because of their lifestyle transformation. And, um, you know, so certain environmental factors we can't control but we can control our response to them. But as far as our personal environments, you know, there are so many changes that we can make in our personal environments that can improve our overall quality of life, which will improve our response to, you know, our fitness and diet programs. 
Um, so yeah, definitely encourage people to take a look at their environment, whether, you know, like look at your desk at work, like is your desk neat and organized? Is your home neat and organized? The way that we treat our belongings and our space is reflective of what's going on inside of our body. So that's huge. Um, you know, are you a hoarder? Do you have clutter? Do you let laundry pile up? Do you have stacks of mail on your dining table? So you eat on the couch, like once you start sort of cleaning up your life, it becomes so much easier to really um, focus and, and sort of clean up your body. You know, your nutrition and your fitness um, is really reflective of like how you manage the rest of your life. Have you ever seen in your experience like negative relationships being like family, friends, and even spouse causing a lot of issues? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have worked with many women who, you know, like they're they're going through um, divorce, or you know, they they do have someone in their life that is. Um, I hate the word toxic because I feel like every everyone is just doing the best that they can with the tools that they've been given. Um, and obviously, as a coach, we're only seeing one side of the story, but I definitely have seen how. Um, how a negative relationship in your in your life can impact your body and your health tremendously. You know, I went through a divorce a few years ago and I was a train wreck, you know, and it, it wasn't it wasn't an awful like drag each other through the mud divorce, but it, it definitely takes a toll on your body. And you know, leading up to the time we decided to get a divorce, like I even though I worked out all the time and I, I ate well, like I looked like a different person. I, I was the same weight that I am now, but I looked heavier. Um, I just looked tired and old and, you know, he and I both were sort of in that, that, um, space where you're just so stressed out because of all the negative energy in your life that it really affects, um, the physiology of your body. So there are certain, um, you know, like I'm, I'm a huge advocate for, for constantly working on relationships or um, distancing yourself or letting go of relationships that don't serve you. Some of those are easier to do than others. But yeah, definitely have those check-ins and see like every time I interact with this person, like how, how do I physiologically feel? Is it affecting me? Um, you know, like every time I leave work, do I feel like I need to chug a glass of wine just to like overcome that interaction that I have with my boss or, you know, am I afraid to have a voice in my, in my marriage or do I let my mother-in-law just badger me all the time and I don't ever stand up for myself. So you really have to start looking at, um, the interactions that you have in your life and, and get really jealous with your, your, personal space and, and what energy you allow into it, you know, like, are you getting as much out of this relationship as you're putting in? And, and if you're not, then why are you investing so much time in it? Um, cause we only have so much time on this planet. We don't know when our last, last breath is going to be. And so I think we should really get jealous and cherish our time, um, you know, and, and making sure that we're surrounding ourselves with positive energy as much as possible. Why do you think a lot of people have trouble letting go of a relationship when they know that their life would be so much better if they just ended it? Like, I find, I, I know a handful of people that went through that where, you know, their spouse clearly was not the right choice. They both are, like, at each other's throats all the time. 
and the individual knows it would be easier to get rid of the whole relationship, but for some reason they decide to just stay in it and just grind it out. Yeah, um, I am by no means like a, a relationship sure. psychologist or anything. Uh, I think it looks different for everyone, but you know that just like we can sort of frame it around, you know, why do people choose to drink a two liter of soda and eat um, a bag of chips every day, even though they know like life could be better if we reformed those habits and made better choices. Um, but humans are comfort creatures, right? And and it's almost like we've invested so much of ourselves into this thing that um, we're afraid of, you know, what's, what is the alternative? What, what if... Um, what if we can work things out? You know, just the same, the same way we treat our bodies, we certainly um, treat our emotional health and our relationships. And I think I've noticed with, um, you know, dieting and exercise choices, like people don't realize how bad they feel until they start feeling good. Like some people don't realize how bad a relationship is for them until, you know, they either heal together or they decide um, this isn't working and they heal apart. Um, you know, so much of that is reflective on all the choices and, and habits we make. Um, like you and I know when we we eat poorly consistently or, you know, like we don't have enough movement in our lives, we instantly know like, oh, I, I just don't feel good. Like I need, I need to go for a run or I need to get to the gym. I've been sitting too long or... You know, like I overindulged and I had way too much pizza at the football game and I just feel like junk and like I can't eat like that all the time because we've had the experience of what it what it's like to feel good. But a lot of people have never had that experience. Um, so it's, it's pretty fascinating how what we do with our bodies and, you know, what we do with our emotional health, our relationship health, it, it kind of all converges. And, you know, it's like you see a lot of people who, um, who go from like being inactive and not eating well to adopting a fit lifestyle and their partner doesn't. And then like, there's just this divide in the family because the, the healthy partner is like, Oh, you have no idea how great I feel. I want you to know what this is like. And the other partner feels like you're just trying to change who I am. Um, you know, so there's, there's so much that goes into that, but the, I guess the bottom line is we don't know what it's like to feel bad until we feel good. Well, I know what you mean. Cause like a couple of years ago, I had to make the decision of ending my relationship with a business partner and the moment that I actually took that leap, like, mm -hmm. holy crap, like, that feeling, I could not, like, describe it. But yeah. after, when it was done, it was, like, this giant weight lifted off my shoulders. And now mm -hmm. the position where I am in my career is so much better. Like, I'm actually happy every day. And even my wife yeah. was, like, you don't even understand how much you've changed. Like, there's, like, this, like, aura around you, essentially. Yeah. But it's it's crazy, Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure the you know the the partner it was a relief for them, and mm -hmm. it's like, like it's hard. It's hard making those life-altering decisions, but we don't grow unless we change. And sometimes change means that you know means letting go so that we can let in, and that's one of the hardest things. Um, you know, like 
my ex-husband and I, we were together for 18 years and we have two kids together. Um, and getting divorced was like one of our best, uh, decisions as parents and as adults, because now, uh, we've both grown tremendously. We're both very happy. You know, we're both raising our kids. Um, and I, I, though it was like a hard decision, it was a great decision. Um, I can't say it works that way for everyone, but yeah, it's just sometimes we have to let go to let in and to grow. And um, it's a very hard thing. You know, you probably hear it all the time as people um, who are embarking on a new fitness and nutrition lifestyle, like the biggest worries is like, oh, all the stuff I'm going to have to give up. And it's like, well, let's shift that mindset and think about everything that you're going to gain. You know, like, is giving up your your nightly bowl of ice cream worth gaining, you know, 27 different health benefits? You know, so you just kind of have to reframe, like, what am I gaining by letting this go? Perfect. And I think that's a good place to end it and have the very last question of, if people wanted to find out more about you and what you got going on on the online space, uh, where they can find you online and any other projects you have coming out and anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my main site is fitthriveworkouts.com. I've got tons of articles, workout suggestions. If you head there now, I have a free three days to a better squat mini series that you can subscribe to. Um, and then, you know, I do offer online workout systems on there, personal online coaching and, um, Kelly Davis fit is my Instagram handle, which is where I post, uh, workout tips and advice and like inspiration and education. Um, that's probably where I'm most prolific. I, I wouldn't say that I'm like crazy about social media, but I definitely always have good content there. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I think Instagram, like if you're not on Instagram, you can look up Fit Thrive Workouts on Facebook and follow me there. I, I offer content on Facebook as well. Awesome. So as far you. as oh, new projects, no, I don't have new projects. <laughs> um, that was like my, my goal this year is to stop creating. Nice. <laughs> so, so nothing new coming out this year. But <laughs> Awesome. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And um, I appreciate your audience tuning in and listening. All right. So that's going to wrap up this special 2019 top five podcast episode where we look back at the most listened to um, episodes. And it was a nice kind of recap of the year. And hopefully... For those who made it through this four hours of audio, good for you. And for those who just skipped through to the ones that they like, awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to 2020. I have a lot of big things going to be happening for me and this podcast. And I can't wait to share it with you guys. So thank you so much for the support this past year. You guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Let's crush 2020, guys. This is going to be fucking awesome. Here we go.